Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 47 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 47. The Dappled Greys. The Baron followed by the count traversed a long series of apartments in which the prevailing characteristics were heavy magnificence and the gaudiness of ostentatious wealth until he reached the boudoir of madame Danglars, a small octagonal shaped room hung with pink satin covered with white indian muslin the chairs were of ancient workmanship and materials over the doors were painted sketches of shepherds and shepherdesses after the style and manner of boucher and at each side pretty medallions in crayons harmonizing well with the furnishings of this charming apartment the only one throughout the great mansion in which any distinctive taste prevailed the truth was it had been entirely overlooked in the plan arranged and followed out by m danglars and his architect who had been selected to aid the baron in the great work of improvement solely because he was the most fashionable and celebrated decorator of the day the decorations of the boudoir had been left entirely to madame danglars and lucien de bray monsieur danglars however while possessing a great admiration for the antique as it was understood during the time of the directory entertained the most sovereign contempt for the simple elegance of his wife's favorite sitting-room where by the way he was never permitted to intrude unless indeed he excused his own appearance by ushering in some more agreeable visitor than himself and even then he had rather the air and manner of a person who was himself introduced than that of being the presenter of another his reception being cordial or frigid in proportion as the person who accompanied him chanced to please or displease the baroness madame danglars who although past the first bloom of youth was still strikingly handsome was now seated at the piano a most elaborate piece of cabinet and inlaid work which lucien de bray standing before a small work-table was turning over the pages of an album lucien had found time preparatory to the count's arrival to relate many particulars respecting him to madame danglars it will be remembered that monte cristo had made a lively impression on the minds of all the party assembled at the breakfast given by albert de morcerf and although de bray was not in the habit of yielding to such feelings he had never been able to shake off the powerful influence excited in his mind by the impressive look and manner of the count consequently the description given by lucien to the baroness bore the highly colored tinge of his own heated imagination 
already excited by the wonderful stories related of the count by de morcerf it is no wonder that madame danglars eagerly listened to and fully credited all the additional circumstances detailed by debray this posing at the piano and over the album was only a little ruse adopted by way of precaution a most gracious welcome and unusual smile were bestowed on monsieur danglars the count in return for his gentlemanly bow received a formal though graceful courtesy while lucien exchanged with the count a sort of distant recognition and with danglars a free and easy nod baroness said danglars give me leave to present to you the count of monte cristo who has been most warmly recommended to me by my correspondent at rome i need but mention one fact to make all the ladies in paris court his notice and that is uh, that he has come to take up his abode in paris for a year during which brief period he proposes to spend six millions of money that means balls dinners and lawn parties without end in all of which i trust the count will remember us as he may depend upon it we shall him in our own humble entertainments in spite of the gross flattery and coarseness of this address madame danglars could not forbear gazing with considerable interest on a man capable of expending six million in twelve months and who had selected paris for the scene of his princely extravagance and when did you arrive here inquired she yesterday morning madame coming as usual i presume from the extreme end of the globe pardon me at least such i have heard is your custom nay madame this time i have merely come from cadiz you have selected a most unfavourable moment for your first visit paris is a horrible place in summer balls parties and fêtes are over the italian opera is in london the french opera everywhere except in paris as for the theatre francais you know of course that it is nowhere the only amusements left us are the indifferent races at the champ de mars and satorie do you propose entering any horses at either of these races count i shall do whatever they do at paris madame if i have the good fortune to find someone who will initiate me into the prevalent ideas of amusement are you fond of horses count i have passed a considerable part of my life in the east madame and you are doubtless aware that the orientals value only two things the fine breeding of their horses and the beauty of their women nay count said the baroness it would have been somewhat more gallant to have placed the ladies first you see madame how rightly i spoke when i said i required a preceptor to guide me in all my sayings and doings here at this instant the favourite attendant of madame danglars entered the boudoir approaching her mistress she spoke some words in an undertone madame danglars turned very pale then exclaimed i cannot believe it the thing is impossible i assure you madame replied the woman it is as i have said turning impatiently toward her husband madame danglars demanded is this true is what true madame inquired danglars visibly agitated what my maid tells me 
but what did she tell you that when my coachman was about to harness the horses to my carriage he discovered that they had been removed from the stables without his knowledge i desire to know what is the meaning of this be kind enough madame to listen to me said danglars oh yes i will listen monsieur for i am most curious to hear what explanation you will give these two gentlemen shall decide between us but first i shall state the case to them gentlemen continued the baroness among the ten horses in the stables of baron danglars are two that belong exclusively to me a pair of the handsomest and most spirited creatures to be found in paris but to you at least monsieur d'aubray i need not give a further description because to you my beautiful pair of dapple greys were well known well i had promised madame de villefort the loan of my carriage to drive to-morrow to the bois but when my coachman goes to fetch the greys from the stables they are gone positively gone no doubt monsieur danglars has sacrificed them to the selfish consideration of gaining some thousands of poultry francs oh, what a detestable crew they are those mercenary speculators madame replied danglars the horses were not sufficiently quiet for you they were scarcely four years old and they made me extremely uneasy on your account nonsense retorted the baroness you could not have entertained any alarm on the subject because you are perfectly aware that i have had for a month in my service the very best coachman in paris but perhaps you have disposed of the coachman as well as the horses my dear love pray do not say any more about them and i promise you another pair exactly like them in appearance only more quiet and steady the baroness shrugged her shoulders with an air of ineffable contempt while her husband affecting not to observe this unconjugal gesture turned towards monte cristo and said upon my word count i am quite sorry not to have met you sooner you are setting up an establishment of course why yes replied the count i should have liked to have made you the offer of these horses i have almost given them away as it is but as i before said i was anxious to get rid of them upon any terms they were only fit for a young man i am much obliged by your kind intentions towards me said monte cristo but this morning i purchased a very excellent pair of carriage horses and i do not think they were dear there they are come monsieur debray you are a connoisseur i believe let me have your opinion upon them as debray walked towards the window danglars approached his wife i could not tell you before others said he in a low tone the reason of my parting with the horses but a most enormous price was offered me this morning for them some madman or foul bent upon running himself as fast as he can actually sent his steward to me to purchase them at any cost and the fact is i have gained sixteen thousand francs by the sale of them come don't look so angry and you shall have four thousand francs of the money to do what you like with 
and Eugenie shall have two thousand. There, what do you think now of the affair? Wasn't I right to part with the horses? Madame Danglars surveyed her husband with a look of withering contempt. Great heavens! suddenly exclaimed Debray. What is it? asked the baroness. I cannot be mistaken. There are your horses, the very animals we were speaking of, harnessed to the Count's carriage. My dappled greys? demanded the baroness, springing to the window. Tis indeed they, said she. Danglars looked absolutely stupefied. How very singular, cried Monte Cristo with well-feigned astonishment. I cannot believe it, murmured the banker. Madame Danglars whispered a few words in the ear of Debray, who approached Monte Cristo, saying, The baroness wishes to know what you paid her husband for the horses. I scarcely know, replied the Count. It was a little surprise prepared for me by my steward, and cost me, well, somewhere about thirty thousand francs. Debray conveyed the Count's reply to the baroness. Poor Danglars looked so crestfallen and discomfited that Monte Cristo assumed a pitying air towards him. See, said the Count, how very ungrateful women are. Your kind attention in providing for the safety of the baroness by disposing of the horses does not seem to have made the least impression on her. But so it is. A woman will often, from mere wilfulness, prefer that which is dangerous to that which is safe. Therefore, in my opinion, my dear Baron, the best and easiest way is to leave them to their fancies, and allow them to act as they please, and then, if any mischief follows, why, at least, they have no one to blame but themselves. Donglar made no reply, but he was occupied in anticipation of the coming scene between himself and the baroness, whose frowning brow, like that of Olympic Jove, predicted a storm. Debray, who perceived the gathering clouds, and felt no desire to witness the explosion of Madame Danglars's rage, suddenly recollected an appointment which compelled him to take his leave, while Monte Cristo, unwilling by prolonging his stay to destroy the advantages he hoped to obtain, made a farewell bow and departed, leaving Danglars to endure the angry reproaches of his wife. "'Excellent!' murmured Monte Cristo to himself as he came away. "'All has gone according to my wishes. The domestic peace of this family is henceforth in my hands. Now, then, to play another master-stroke by which I shall gain the heart of both husband and wife. Delightful! Still,' added he, Amid all this, uh, I have not yet been presented to Mademoiselle Eugène Danglars, whose acquaintance I should have been glad to make, but—he went on with his peculiar smile—I am here in Paris, and have plenty of time before me. By and by will do for that. With these reflections, he entered his carriage and returned home. Two hours afterwards, Madame Danglars received a most flattering epistle from the Count— in which he entreated her to receive back her favourite dappled greys, protesting they could not endure the idea of making his entry into the Parisian world of fashion 
with the knowledge that his splendid equipage had been obtained at the price of a lovely woman's regrets the horses were sent back wearing the same harness she had seen on them in the morning only by the count's orders in the centre of each rosette that adorned either side of their heads had been fastened a large diamond to danglars monte cristo also wrote requesting him to excuse the whimsical gift of a capricious millionaire and to beg the baroness to pardon the eastern fashion adopted in the return of the horses during the evening monte cristo quitted paris for autreuil accompanied by ali the following day about three o'clock a single blow struck on the gong summoned ali to the presence of the count ali observed his master as the nubian entered the chamber you have frequently explained to me how more than commonly skilful you are in throwing the lasso have you not ali drew himself up proudly and then returned the sign in the affirmative i thought i did not mistake with your lasso you could stop an ox again ali repeated his affirmative gesture or a tiger ali bowed his head in token of assent a lion even ali sprung forwards imitating the action of one throwing the lasso then of a strangled lion i understand said monte cristo you wish to tell me you have hunted the lion ali smiled with triumphant pride as he signified that he had indeed both chased and captured many lions but do you believe you could arrest the progress of two horses rushing forwards with ungovernable fury the nubian smiled it is well said monte cristo then listen to me ere long a carriage will dash past here drawn by the pair of dappled grey horses you saw me with yesterday now at the risk of your own life you must manage to stop these horses before my door ali descended to the street and marked a straight line on the pavement immediately at the entrance of the house and then pointed out the line he had traced to the count who was watching him the count patted him gently on the shoulder his usual mode of praising ali who pleased and gratified with the commission assigned him walked calmly towards a projecting stone forming the angle of the street and house and seating himself thereon began to smoke his chibouk while monte cristo re-entered his dwelling perfectly assured of the success of his plan still as five o'clock approached and the carriage was momentarily expected by the count the indication of more than common impatience and uneasiness might be observed in his manner he stationed himself in a room commanding a view of the street pacing the chamber with restless steps stopping merely to listen from time to time for the sound of approaching wheels then to cast an anxious glance on ali but the regularity with which the nubian puffed forth the smoke of his chibouk proved that he at least was wholly absorbed in the enjoyment of his favorite occupation suddenly a distant sound of rapidly advancing wheels was heard and almost immediately a carriage appeared drawn by a pair of wild ungovernable horses while the terrified coachman strove in vain to restrain their furious speed in the vehicle was a young woman and a child of about seven or eight clasped in each other's arms terror seemed to have deprived them even of the power of uttering a cry 
the carriage creaked and rattled as it flew over the rough stones and the slightest obstacle under the wheels would have caused disaster but it kept on in the middle of the road and those who saw it passed uttered cries of terror ali suddenly cast aside his chibouk drew the lasso from his pocket threw it so skilfully as to catch the forelegs of the near horse in its triple fold and suffered himself to be dragged on for a few steps by the violence of the shock then the animal fell over on the pole which snapped and therefore prevented the other horse from pursuing its way gladly availing himself of this opportunity the coachman leapt from his box but ali had promptly seized the nostrils of the second horse and held them in his iron grasp till the beast snorting with pain sunk beside his companion all this was achieved in much less time than is occupied in the recital the brief space had however been sufficient for a man followed by a number of servants to rush from the house before which the accident had occurred and as the coachman opened the door of the carriage to take from it a lady who was convulsively grasping the cushions with one hand while the other she pressed to her bosom the young boy who had lost consciousness monte cristo carried them both to the salon and deposited them on a sofa compose yourself madame said he all danger is over the woman looked up at these words and with a glance far more expressive than any entreaties could have been pointed to her child who still continued insensible i understand the nature of your alarms madame said the count carefully examining the child but i assure you there is not the slightest occasion for uneasiness your little charge has not received the least injury his insensibility is merely the effects of terror and will soon pass are you quite sure you do not say so to tranquillize my fears see how deadly pale he is my child my darling edward speak to your mother open your dear eyes and look on me once again oh sir in pity send for a physician my whole fortune shall not be thought too much for the recovery of my boy with a calm smile and a gentle wave of the hand monte cristo signed to the distracted mother to lay aside her apprehensions then opening a casket that stood near he drew forth a phial of bohemian glass encrusted with gold containing a liquid of the color of blood of which he let fall a single drop on the child's lips scarcely had it reached them ere the boy though still pale as marble opened his eyes and eagerly gazed around him at this the delight of the mother was almost frantic where am i exclaimed she and to whom am i indebted for so happy a termination to my late dreadful alarm madame answered the count you are under the roof of one who esteems himself most fortunate in having been able to save you from a further continuance of your sufferings my wretched curiosity has brought all this about pursued the lady all paris rung with the praises of madame danglars beautiful horses and i had the folly to desire to know whether they really merited the high praise given to them is it possible exclaimed the count with well-feigned astonishment that these horses belong to the baroness they do indeed may i inquire if you are acquainted 
with Madame Danglars? I have that honour, and my happiness at your escape from the danger that threatened you is redoubled by the consciousness that I have been the unwilling and the unintentional cause of all the peril you have incurred. I yesterday purchased these horses of the Baron, but as the Baroness evidently regretted parting with them, I ventured to send them back to her, with a request that she would gratify me by accepting them from my hands. "'You are, then, doubtless, the Count of Monte Cristo, of whom Hermine has talked to me so much.' "'You have rightly guessed, madame,' replied the Count. "'And I am Madame Eloise de Villefort.' The Count bowed with the air of a person who hears a name for the first time. "'How grateful will Monsieur de Villefort be for all your goodness!' How thankful will he acknowledge that to you alone he owes the existence of his wife and child. Most certainly, but for the prompt assistance of your intrepid servant, this dear child and myself must both have perished. Indeed, I shall shudder at the fearful danger you were placed in. I trust you will allow me to recompense worthily the devotion of your man. I beseech you, madame, replied Monte Cristo, not to spoil Ali, either by too great a praise or rewards. I cannot allow him to acquire the habit of expecting to be recompensed for every trifling service he may render. Ali is my slave, and in saving your life he was but discharging his duty to me. Nay, interposed Madame de Villefort, on whom the authoritative style adopted by the Count made a deep impression. "'Nay, but consider that to preserve my life he has risked his own.' "'His life, madame, belongs not to him, it is mine, in return for my having myself saved him from death.' Madame de Villefort made no further reply. Her mind was utterly absorbed in the contemplation of the person who, from the first instant she saw him, had made so powerful an impression on her. During the evident preoccupation of Madame de Villefort, Monte Cristo scrutinized the features and appearance of the boy she kept folded in her arms, lavishing on him the most tender endearments. The child was small for his age and unnaturally pale. A mass of straight black hair, defying all attempts to train or curl it, fell over his projecting forehead and hung down to his shoulders, giving increased vivacity to eyes already sparkling with a youthful love of mischief and fondness for every forbidden enjoyment. His mouth was large, and the lips, which had not yet regained their colour, were particularly thin. In fact, the deep and crafty look, giving a predominant expression to the child's face, belonged rather to a boy of twelve or fourteen than to one so young. His first movement was to free himself by a violent push from the encircling arms of his mother, and to rush forward to the casket from whence the Count had taken the phial of elixir, then, without asking permission of any one, he proceeded in all the wilfulness of a spoiled child unaccustomed to restrain either whims or caprices, to pull the corks out of all the bottles. "'Touch nothing, my little friend,' cried the Count eagerly. Some of those liquids are not only dangerous to taste, but even to inhale. 
Madame de Villefort became very pale, and, seizing her son's arms, drew him anxiously toward her. But, once satisfied of his safety, she also cast a brief but expressive glance on the casket, which was not lost upon the Count. At this moment Ali entered. At sight of him, Madame de Villefort uttered an expression of pleasure, and, holding the child still closer toward her, she said, "'Edward, dearest, do you see that good man? He has shown very great courage and resolution, for he exposed his own life to stop the horses that were running away with us and would certainly have dashed the carriage to pieces. Thank him, then, my child, in your very best manner, for, had he not come to our aid, neither you nor I would have been alive to speak our thanks.' The child stuck out his lips and turned away his head in a disdainful manner, saying, "'He's too ugly.' The Count smiled as if the child bade fair to realise his hopes, while Madame de Villefort reprimanded her son with a gentleness and moderation very far from conveying the least idea of a fault having been committed. "'This lady,' said the Count, speaking to Ali in the Arabic language, "'is desirous.' that her son should thank you for saving both their lives. But the boy refuses, saying you are too ugly. Ali turned his intelligent countenance towards the boy, on whom he gazed without any apparent emotion, but the spasmodic working of the nostrils showed to the practised eye of Monte Cristo that the Arab had been wounded to the heart. "'Will you permit me to inquire?' said Madame de Villefort as she arose to take her leave. "'Whether you usually reside here?' "'No, I do not,' uh, replied Monte Cristo. "'It is a small place I have purchased quite lately. My place of abode is number 30, Avenue des Champs-Élysées, but I see you have quite recovered from your fright, and are no doubt desirous of returning home. Anticipating your wishes, I have desired the same horses you came with to be put to one of my carriages, and Ali, he whom you think so very ugly, continued he, addressing the boy with a smiling air, will have the honour of driving you home, while your coachman remains here to attend to the necessary repairs of your calash. As soon as that important business is concluded, I will have a pair of my own horses harnessed to convey it direct to Madame Donglar. I dare not return with those dreadful horses, said Madame de Villefort. "'You will see,' replied Monte Cristo, "'that they will be as different as possible in the hands of Ali. With him they will be gentle and docile as lambs.' Ali had indeed given proof of this, for approaching the animals who had been got upon their legs with considerable difficulty, he rubbed their foreheads and nostrils with a sponge soaked in aromatic vinegar and wiped off the sweat and foam that covered their mouths. Then, commencing a loud whistling noise, he rubbed them well all over their bodies for several minutes, then, undisturbed by the noisy crowd, collected round the broken carriage. Ali quietly harnessed the pacified animals to the Count's chariot, took the reins in his hands, and mounted the box, when to the utter astonishment of those who had witnessed the ungovernable spirit and maddened speed of the same horses, he was actually compelled to apply his whip in no very gentle manner before he could induce them to start. And even then, 
all that could be obtained from the celebrated dappled greys now changed into a couple of dull sluggish stupid brutes was a slow pottering pace kept up with so much difficulty that madame de villefort was more than two hours returning to her residence in the faubourg saint honore scarcely had the first congratulations upon her marvellous escape been gone through when she wrote the following letter to madame danglars dear hermine i have just had a wonderful escape from the most imminent danger and i owe my safety to the very count of monte cristo we were talking about yesterday but whom i little expected to see to-day i remember how unmercifully i laughed at what i consider your eulogistic and exaggerated praises of him but i have now ample cause to admit that your enthusiastic description of this wonderful man fell far short of his merits your horses got as far as ranelagh when they darted forward like mattings and galloped away at such a fearful rate that there seemed no other prospect for myself and my poor edward but that of being dashed to pieces against the first object that impeded their progress when a strange-looking man an arab a negro or a nubian at least a black of some nation or other at a signal from the count whose domestic he is suddenly seized and stopped the infuriated animals even at the risk of being trampled to death himself and certainly he must have had a most wonderful escape the count then hastened to us and took us into his house where he speedily recalled my poor edward to life he sent us home in his own carriage yours will be returned to you to-morrow you will find your horses in bad condition from the results of this accident they seem thoroughly stupefied as if sulky and vexed at having been conquered by man the count however has commissioned me to assure you that two or three days rest with plenty of barley for their sole food during that time will bring them back to as fine that is as terrifying a condition as they were in yesterday adieu i cannot return you many thanks for the drive of yesterday but after all i ought not to blame you for the misconduct of your horses more especially as it procured me the pleasure of an introduction to the count of monte cristo and certainly that illustrious personage apart from the millions he is said to be so very anxious to dispose of seemed to me one of those curiously interesting problems i for one delight in solving at any risk even if it were to necessitate another drive to the bois behind your horses edward endured the accident with miraculous courage he did not utter a single cry but fell lifeless into my arms nor did a tear fall from his eyes after it was over i doubt not you will consider these praises the result of blind maternal affection but there is a soul of iron in that delicate fragile body valentine sends many affectionate remembrances to your dear eugenie i embrace you with all my heart eloise de villefort p s do pray contrive some means for me to meet the count of monte cristo at your house i must and will see him again 
I have just made Monsieur de Villefort promise to call on him, and I hope the visit will be returned. That night, the adventure at Auteuil was talked of everywhere. Albert related it to his mother. Chateau Renaud recounted it at the jockey club, and Debray detailed it at length in the salons of the minister. Even Beauchamp accorded twenty lines in his journal to the relation of the Count's courage and gallantry, thereby celebrating him as the greatest hero of the day in the eyes of all the feminine members of the aristocracy. Vast was the crowd of visitors and inquiring friends who left their names at the residence of Madame de Villefort, with the design of renewing their visit at the right moment, of hearing from her lips all the interesting circumstances of the most romantic adventure. As for Monsieur de Villefort, he fulfilled the predictions of Eloise to the letter, donned his dress-suit, drew on a pair of white gloves, ordered the servants to attend the carriage dressed in their full livery, and drove that same night to numero trente in the Avenue des Champs-Élysées. End of chapter 47《Whether the government was doctrinaire liberal or conservative, looked upon by all as a man of talent, since those who have never experienced a political check are generally so regarded, hated by many, but warmly supported by others, without being really liked by anybody. Monsieur de Villefort held a high position in the magistracy, and maintained his eminence like a harley or a mole. His drawing-room, under the regenerating influence of a young wife and a daughter by his first marriage, scarcely eighteen, was still one of the well-regulated Paris salons, where the worship of traditional customs and the observance of rigid etiquette were carefully maintained. A freezing politeness, a strict fidelity to government principles, a profound contempt for theories and theorists, a deep-seated hatred of ideality, these were the elements of private and public life displayed by Monsieur de Villefort. He was not only a magistrate, he was almost a diplomatist. His relations with the former court, of which he always spoke with dignity and respect, made him respected by the new one, and he knew so many things that not only was he always carefully considered, but sometimes consulted. Perhaps this would not have been so had it been possible to get rid of Monsieur de Villefort, but, like the feudal barons who rebelled against their sovereign, he dwelt in an impregnable fortress. This fortress was his post as king's attorney, all the advantages of which he exploited with marvellous skill, and which he would not have resigned but to be made deputy, and thus to replace neutrality by opposition. Ordinarily, Monsieur de Villefort made and returned very few visits. His wife visited for him, and this was the received thing in the world, where the weighty and multifarious occupations of the magistrate were accepted as an excuse for what was really only calculated pride, a manifestation of professed superiority. In fact, 
the application of the axiom pretend to think well of yourself and the world will think well of you an axiom a hundred times more useful in society nowadays than that of the greeks know thyself a knowledge for which in our days we have substituted the less difficult and more advantageous science of knowing others to his friends <coughs> monsieur de villefort was a powerful protector to his enemies he was a silent but bitter opponent for those who were neither the one nor the other he was a statue of the law-made man he had a haughty bearing a look either steady and impenetrable or insolently piercing and inquisitorial four successive revolutions had built and cemented the pedestal upon which his fortune was based monsieur de villefort had the reputation of being the least curious and the least wearisome man in france he gave a ball every year at which he appeared for a quarter of an hour only that is to say five and forty minutes less than the king is visible at his balls he was never seen at the theatres at concerts or in any place of public resort occasionally but seldom he played at whist and then care was taken to select partners worthy of him sometimes they were ambassadors sometimes archbishops or sometimes a prince or a president or some dowager duchess such was the man whose carriage had just now stopped before the count of monte cristo's door the valet de chambre announced monsieur de villefort at the moment when the count leaning over a large table was tracing on a map the route from st petersburg to china the procureur entered with the same grave and measured step he would have employed in entering a court of justice he was the same man or rather the development of the same man whom we have heretofore seen as assistant attorney at marseilles nature according to her way had made no deviation in the path he had marked out for himself from being slender he had now become meagre once pale he was now yellow his deep-set eyes were hollow and the gold spectacles shielding his eyes seemed to be an integral portion of his face he dressed entirely in black with the exception of his white tie and his funeral appearance was only mitigated by the slight line of red ribbon which passed almost imperceptibly through his buttonhole and appeared like a streak of blood traced with a delicate brush although master of himself monte cristo scrutinized with irrepressible curiosity the magistrate whose salute he returned and who distrustful by habit and especially incredulous as to social prodigies was much more despised to look upon the noble stranger as monte cristo was already called as an adventurer in search of new fields or an escaped criminal rather than as a prince of the holy see or a sultan of the thousand and one knights sir said villefort in the squeaky tone assumed by magistrates in their oratorical periods and of which they cannot or will not divest themselves in society sir the signal service which you yesterday rendered to my wife and son has made it a duty for me to offer you my thanks i have come therefore to discharge this duty and to express to you my overwhelming gratitude and as he said this the eye severe of the magistrate had lost nothing of its habitual arrogance he spoke in a voice of the procureur-general with the rigid inflexibility of neck and shoulders which caused his flatterers to say as we have before observed that he was the living statue of the lord 
monsieur replied the count with a chilling air i am very happy to have been the means of preserving a son to his mother for they say that the sentiment of maternity is the most holy of all and the good fortune which occurred to me monsieur might have enabled you to dispense with a duty which in its discharge confers an undoubtedly great honour for i am aware that monsieur de villefort is not usually lavish of the favour which he now bestows on me a favour which however estimable is unequal to the satisfaction which i have in my own consciousness villefort astonished at this reply which he by no means expected started like a soldier who feels the blow levelled at him over the armour he wears and a curl of his disdainful lip indicated that from that moment he noted in the tablets of his brain that the count of monte cristo was by no means a highly bred gentleman he glanced around in order to seize on something on which the conversation might turn and seemed to fall easily on a topic he saw the map which monte cristo had been examining when he entered and said you seem geographically engaged sir it is a rich study for you who as i learn have seen as many lands as are delineated on this map yes sir replied the count i have sought to make of the human race taken in the mass that you practice every day on individuals a physiological study i have believed it was much easier to descend from the whole to a part than to ascend from a part to the whole it is an algebraic axiom which makes us proceed from a known to an unknown quantity and not from an unknown to a known but uh, sit down sir i beg of you monte cristo pointed to a chair which the procureur was obliged to take the trouble to move forwards himself while the count merely fell back into his own on which he had been kneeling when monsieur villefort entered thus the count was halfway turned towards his visitor having his back towards the window his elbow resting on the geographical chart which furnished the theme of conversation for the moment a conversation which assumed as in the case of the interviews with danglars and morcerf a turn analogous to the persons if not to the situation ah you philosophize replied villefort after a moment's silence during which like a wrestler who encounters a powerful opponent he took breath well sir really if like you i had nothing else to do i should seek a more amusing occupation why in truth sir was monte cristo's reply man is but an ugly caterpillar for him who studies him through a solar microscope but you said i think that i had nothing else to do now really let me ask sir have you do you believe you have anything to do or to speak in plain terms do you really think that what you do deserves being called anything villefort's astonishment redoubled at this second thrust so forcibly made by his strange adversary it was a long time since the magistrate had heard a paradox so strong or rather to say the truth more exactly it was the first time he had ever heard of it the procureur exerted himself to reply sir he responded you are a stranger and i believe you say yourself that a portion of your life has been spent in oriental countries so you are not aware how human justice so expeditious in barbarous countries takes with us a prudent and well-studied course 
"'Oh, yes. Yes, I do, sir. It is the Pede Claudo of the ancients. I know all of that, for it is with the justice of all countries, especially that I have occupied myself. It is with the criminal procedure of all nations that I have compared natural justice, and I must say, sir, that it is the law of primitive nations, that is, the law of retaliation, that I have most frequently found to be according to the law of God.' "'If this law were adopted, sir,' said the procureur, "'it would greatly simplify our legal codes, "'and in that case the magistrates would not, as you observed, have much to do.' "'It may perhaps come to this in time,' observed Monte Cristo. "'You know that human inventions march from the complex to the simple, "'and simplicity is always perfection.' "'In the meanwhile,' continued the magistrate our codes are in full force with all the contradictory enactments derived from gallic customs roman laws and frank usages the knowledge of all which you will agree is not to be acquired without extended labour it needs tedious study to acquire this knowledge and when acquired a strong power of brain to retain it i agree with you entirely sir but all that even you know with respect to french code i know not only in reference to that code but as regards the codes of all nations the english turkish japanese hindu laws are as familiar to me as the french laws and thus i was right when i said to you that relatively you know that everything is relative sir that relatively to what i have done you have very little to do but that relatively to all I have learned you have yet a great deal to learn. But with what motive have you learned all this? inquired Villefort in astonishment. Monte Cristo smiled. Really, sir, he observed, I see that in spite of the reputation which you have acquired as a superior man, you look at everything from the material and vulgar view of society, beginning with man and ending with man that is to say in the most restricted most narrow view which it is possible for human understanding to embrace pray sir explain yourself said villefort more and more astonished i really do not understand you perfectly i say sir that with the eyes fixed on the social organization of nations you see only the springs of the machine and lose sight of the sublime workman who makes them act i say that you do not recognize before you and around you any but those office holders whose commissions have been signed by a minister or king and that the men whom god has put above those office holders ministers and kings by giving them a mission to follow out instead of a post to fill i say that they escape your narrow limited field of observation it is thus that human weakness fails from its debilitated and imperfect organs tobias took the angel who restored him to light for an ordinary young man the nations took attila who was doomed to destroy them for a conqueror similar to other conquerors and it was necessary for both to reveal their missions that they might be known and acknowledged one was compelled to say i am the angel of the lord 
and the other i am the hammer of god in order that the divine essence in both might be revealed then said villefort more and more amazed and really supposing he was speaking to a mystic or a madman you consider yourself as one of those extraordinary beings whom you have mentioned and why not said monte cristo coldly your pardon sir replied villefort quite astounded but you will excuse me if when i presented myself to you i was unaware that i should meet with a person whose knowledge and understanding so far surpass the usual knowledge and understanding of men it is not usual with us corrupted wretches of civilization to find gentlemen like yourself possessors as you are of immense fortune at least so it is said and i beg you to observe that i do not inquire i merely repeat it is not usual i say for such privileged and wealthy beings to waste their time in speculations on the state of society in philosophical reveries intended at best to console those whom fate has disinherited from the goods of this world really sir retorted the count have you attained the eminent situation in which you are without having admitted or even without having met with exceptions and do you never use your eyes which must have acquired so much finesse and the certainty to divine at a glance the kind of man by whom you are confronted should not a magistrate be not merely the best administrator of the law but the most crafty expounder of the chicanery of his profession a steel probe to search hearts a touchstone to try the gold which in each soul is mingled with more or less of alloy sir said villefort upon my word you overcome me i really never heard a person speak as you do because you remain eternally encircled in a round of general conditions and have never dared to raise your wings into those upper spheres which god has peopled with invisible or exceptional beings and you allow then sir that spheres exist and that these marked and invisible beings mingle amongst us why should they not can you see the air you breathe and yet without which you could not for a moment exist then we do not see those beings to whom you allude yes we do you see them whenever god pleases to allow them to assume a material form you touch them come in contact with them speak to them and they reply to you ah said villefort smiling i confess i should like to be warned when one of these beings is in contact with me you have been served as you desire monsieur for you were warned just now and i now again warn you then you yourself are one of these marked beings yes monsieur i believe so for until now no man has found himself in a position similar to mine the dominions of kings are limited either by mountains or rivers or a change of manners or an alteration of language my kingdom is bounded only by the world for i am not an italian or a frenchman or a hindu or an american or a spaniard 
I am a cosmopolite. No country can say it was my birth. God alone knows what country will see me die. I adopt all customs, speak all languages. You believe me to be a Frenchman, for I speak French with the same facility and purity as yourself. Well, Ali, my Nubian, believes me to be an Arab. Bertuccio, my steward, takes me for a Roman. Haldi, my slave, thinks me a Greek. You may therefore comprehend that being of no country, asking no protection from any government, acknowledging no man as my brother, not one of the scruples that arrest the powerful or the obstacles which paralyze the weak, paralyzes or arrests me. I have only two adversaries. I will not say two conquerors, for with perseverance I subdue even them. They are time and distance. There is a third, and the most terrible, and that is my condition as a mortal being. This alone can stop me in my onward career before I have attained the goal at which I aim, for all the rest I have reduced to mathematical terms. What men call the chances of fate, namely ruin, change, circumstances, I have fully anticipated, and if any of these should overtake me, yet it will not overwhelm me. Unless I die, I shall always be what I am, and therefore it is that I utter the things you have never heard, even from the mouths of kings. For kings have need, and other persons have fear of you. For who is there who does not say to himself, in a society as incongruously organized as ours, perhaps some day I shall have to do with the king's attorney. But can you not say that, sir? The moment you became an inhabitant of France, you are naturally subjected to the French law. I know it, sir, replied Monte Cristo. But when I visit a country, I begin to study by all the means which are available, the men from whom I may have anything to hope or to fear, till I know them as well as, perhaps better than they know themselves. It follows from this, that the king's attorney, be he who he may be, with whom I should have to deal, would assuredly be more embarrassed than I should. That is to say, replied Villefort with hesitation, that human nature being weak, every man, according to your creed, has committed faults. Faults or crimes, responded Monte Cristo with a negligent air. And that you alone, amongst the men whom you do not recognize as your brothers, for you have said so, observed Villefort in a tone that faltered somewhat, you alone are perfect? No, not perfect was the Count's reply. Only impenetrable, that's all. But let us leave off this strain, sir, if the tone of it is displeasing to you. I am no more disturbed by your justice than are you by my second sight. No, no, by no means, said Villefort, who was afraid of seeming to abandon his ground. No, by your brilliant and almost sublime conversation, you have elevated me 
above the ordinary level we no longer talk we rise to dissertation but you know how the theologians in their collegiate chairs and philosophers in their controversies occasionally say cruel truths let us suppose for the moment that we are theologizing in a social way or even philosophically and i will say to you rude as it may seem my brother you sacrifice greatly to pride you may be above others but above you there is god above us all sir was monte cristo's response in a tone with an emphasis so deep that villefort involuntarily shuddered i have my pride for men serpents always ready to threaten every one who would pass without crushing them underfoot but i lay aside that pride before god who has taken me from nothing to make me what i am then count i admire you said villefort who for the first time in this strange conversation used the aristocratic form to the unknown personage whom until now he had only called monsieur yes and i said to you if you are really strong really superior really pious or impenetrable which you are right in saying amounts to the same thing then be proud sir for that is the characteristic of predominance yet you have unquestionably some ambition i have sir and what may it be i too as happens to every man once in his life have been taken by satan into the highest mountain in the earth and where there he showed me all the kingdoms of the world and as he said before so said to he to me child of earth what wouldst thou have to make thee adore me i reflected long for a gnawing ambition and long preyed upon me and then i replied listen i have always heard of providence and yet i have never seen him or anything that resembles him or which can make me believe that he exists i wish to be providence myself for i feel that the most beautiful noblest most sublime thing in the world is to recompense and punish satan bowed his head and groaned you mistake he said providence does exist only you have never seen him because the child of god is as invisible as the parent you have seen nothing that resembles him because he works by secret springs and moves by hidden ways all i can do for you is to make you one of the agents of that providence the bargain was concluded i may sacrifice my soul but what matters it added monte cristo if the thing were to do again i would again do it villefort looked at monte cristo with extreme amazement count he inquired have you any relations no sir i am alone in the world so much the worse why asked monte cristo because then you might witness a spectacle calculated to break down your pride you say you fear nothing but death i did not say that i feared it i only said that death alone could check the execution of my plans and old age 
my end will be achieved before i grow old and madness i have been nearly mad and you know the axiom non bis in edem it is an axiom of criminal law and consequently you understand its full application sir continued villefort there is something to fear besides death old age and madness for instance there is apoplexy that lightning stroke which strikes but does not destroy you and yet which brings everything to an end you are still yourself as now and yet you are yourself no longer you who like ariel verge on the angelic are but an inert mass which like caliban verges on the brutal and this is called in human tongues as i tell you neither more nor less than apoplexy come if so you will count and continue this conversation at my house any day you may be willing to see an adversary capable of understanding and anxious to refute you and i will show you my father monsieur noirtier de villefort one of the most fiery jacobins of the french revolution that is to say he had the most remarkable audacity seconded by a most powerful organization a man who has not perhaps like yourself seen all the kingdoms of the earth but who has helped to overturn one of the greatest in fact a man who believed himself like you one of the envoys not of god but of a supreme being not of providence but of fate well sir the rupture of a blood vessel on the lobe of the brain has destroyed all this not in a day not in an hour but in a second monsieur noirtier who on the previous night was the old jacobin the old senator the old carbonaro laughing at the guillotine the cannon and the dagger monsieur noirtier playing with the revolutions monsieur noirtier for whom france was a vast chessboard from which pawns rooks knights and queens were to disappear so that the king was checkmated monsieur noirtier the redoubtable was the next morning poor monsieur noirtier the helpless old man at the tender mercies of the weakest creature in the household that is his grandchild valentine a dumb and frozen carcass in fact living painlessly on that time may be given for his frame to decompose without his consciousness of its decay alas sir said monte cristo this spectacle is neither strange to my eye nor my thought i am something of a physician and have like my fellows sought more than once for the soul in living and in dead matter yet like providence it has remained invisible to my eyes although present to my heart a hundred writers since socrates seneca saint augustine and gaul have made in verse and prose the comparison you have made and yet i can well understand that a father's sufferings may effect great changes in the mind of a son i will call on you sir since you bid me contemplate for the advantage of my pride this terrible spectacle 
which must have been so great a source of sorrow to your family it would have been so unquestionably had not god given me so large a compensation in contrast with the old man who is dragging his way to the tomb are two children just entering into life valentine the daughter by my first wife mademoiselle rené de saint maran and edward the boy whose life you have this day saved and what is your deduction from this compensation sir inquired monte cristo my deduction is replied villefort that my father led away by his passions has committed some fault unknown to human justice but marked by the justice of god that god desirous in his mercy to punish but one person has visited his justice on him alone monte cristo with a smile on his lips uttered in the depths of his soul a groan which would have made villefort fly had he but heard it adieu sir said the magistrate who had risen from his seat i leave you bearing a remembrance of you a remembrance of esteem which i hope will not be disagreeable to you when you know me better for i am not a man to bore my friends as you will learn besides you have made an eternal friend of madame de villefort the count bowed and contented himself with seeing villefort to the door of his cabinet the procureur being escorted to his carriage by two footmen who on a signal from their master followed him with every mark of attention when he had gone monte cristo breathed a profound sigh and said enough of this poison let me now seek the antidote then sounding his bell he said to ali who entered i am going to madame's chamber have the carriage ready at one o'clock end of chapter forty eight chapter forty nine of the count of monte cristo by alexandre dumas this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter forty nine haiti it will be recollected that the new or rather old acquaintance of the count of monte cristo residing in the rue meslay were no other than maximilien julie and emmanuel the very anticipation of delight to be enjoyed in his forthcoming visits the bright pure gleam of heavenly happiness it diffused over the almost deadly warfare in which he had voluntarily engaged illumined his whole countenance with a look of ineffable joy and calmness as immediately after villefort's departure his thoughts flew back to the cheering prospect before him of tasting at least a brief respite from the fierce and stormy passions of his mind even ali who had hastened to obey the count's summons went forth from his master's presence in charmed amazement at the unusual animation and pleasure depicted on features ordinarily so stern and cold while as though dreading to put to flight the agreeable ideas hovering over his patron's meditations whatever they were the faithful nubian walked on tiptoe towards the door holding his breath lest its faintest sound should dissipate his master's happy reverie it was noon 
and Monte Cristo had set apart one hour to be passed in the apartments of Haiti. As though his oppressed spirit could not all at once admit the feeling of pure and unmixed joy, but required a gradual succession of calm and gentle emotions to prepare his mind to receive full and perfect happiness, in the same manner as ordinary natures demand to be inured by degrees to the reception of strong or violent sensations. The young Greek, as we have already said, occupied apartments wholly unconnected with those of the Count. The rooms had been fitted up in strict accordance with Oriental ideas. The floors were covered with the richest carpets Turkey could produce. The walls hung with brocaded silk of the most magnificent designs and texture, while around each chamber luxurious divans were placed with piles of soft and yielding cushions that needed only to be arranged at the pleasure or convenience of such as sought repose. Haiti and three French maids, and one who was a Greek, the first remained constantly in a small waiting-room, ready to obey the summons of a small golden bell, or to receive the orders of the Romaic slave who knew just enough French to be able to transmit her mistress's wishes to the three other waiting-women. The latter had received most peremptory instructions from Monte Cristo to treat Haiti with all the deference they would observe to a queen. The young girl herself generally passed her time in the chamber at the farther end of her apartments. This was a sort of boudoir, circular, and lighted only from the roof, which consisted of rose-coloured glass. Haidi was reclining upon soft, downy cushions, covered with blue satin spotted with silver. Her head, supported by one of her exquisitely moulded arms, rested on the divan immediately behind her, while the other was employed in adjusting to her lips the coral tube of a rich narghile, through whose flexible pipe she drew the smoke fragrant by its passage through perfumed water. Her attitude, though perfectly natural for an Eastern woman, would, in a European, have been deemed too full of coquettish straining after effect. Her dress, which was that of the women of Epirus, consisted of a pair of white satin trousers, embroidered with pink roses, displaying feet so exquisitely formed and so delicately fair, that they might well have been taken from Parian marble, had not the eye been undeceived by their movements, as they constantly shifted in and out of a pair of little slippers with upturned toes, beautifully ornamented with gold and pearls. She wore a blue and white striped vest, with long open sleeves, trimmed with silver loops and buttons of pearls, and a sort of bodice which, closing only from the centre to the waist, exhibited the whole of the ivory throat and upper part of the bosom. It was fastened with three magnificent diamond clasps. The junction of the bodice and drawers was entirely concealed by one of the many-coloured scarfs, whose brilliant hues and rich silken fringe have rendered them so precious in the eyes of Parisian belle. Tilted on one side of her head, she had a small cap of gold-coloured silk, embroidered with pearls, while on the other a purple rose mingled its glowing colours with the luxuriant masses of her hair, of which the blackness was so intense that it was tinged with blue. The extreme beauty of the countenance that shone forth in loveliness that mocked the vain attempts of dress to augment it was peculiarly and purely Grecian. There were the large, dark, melting eyes, the finely formed nose, 
the coral lips and pearly teeth that belong to her race and country. And to complete the whole, Hady was in the very springtide and fullness of youthful charms. She had not yet numbered more than twenty summers. Monte Cristo summoned the Greek attendant and bade her inquire whether it would be agreeable to her mistress to receive his visit. Hades' only reply was to direct her servant by a sign to withdraw the tapestried curtain that hung before the door of her boudoir, the framework of the opening thus made serving as a sort of border to the graceful tableau presented by the young girl's picturesque attitude and appearance. As Monte Cristo approached, she leaned upon the elbow of the arm that held the narghile, and extended to him her other hand, said, with a smile of captivating sweetness, in the sonorous language spoken by the women of Athens and Sparta. Why demand a permission ere you enter? Are you no longer my master, or have I ceased to be your slave? Monte Cristo returned her smile. Hedy, said he, you well know. Why do you address me so coldly, so distantly? asked the young Greek. Have I by any means displeased you? Oh, if so, punish me as you will, but do not, do not speak to me in tones and manner so formal and constrained. Hedy, replied the Count, you know that you are now in France, and are free. Free to do what? asked the young girl. Free to leave me. Leave you? Why should I leave you? That is not for me to say, but we are now about to mix in society, to visit and be visited. I don't wish to see anybody but you. And should you see one whom you could prefer? I would not be so unjust. I have never seen anyone I prefer to you, and I have never loved anyone but you and my father. My poor child, replied Monte Cristo, there is merely because your father and myself are the only men you have ever talked to. I don't want anybody else to talk to me. My father said I was his joy. You style me your love, and both of you have called me my child. Do you remember your father, Hedy? The young Greek smiled. He is here and here, said she, touching her eyes and her heart. And where am I? inquired Monte Cristo laughingly. You cried she with tones of thrilling tenderness. You are everywhere. Monte Cristo took the delicate hand of the young girl in his, and was about to raise it to his lips when the simple child of nature hastily withdrew it, and presented her cheek. You now understand, Hedy, said the Count, that from this moment you are absolutely free, that here you exercise unlimited away and are at liberty to lay aside or continue the costume of your country, as it may suit your inclination. Within this mansion you are absolute mistress of your actions, and may go abroad or remain in your apartments as may seem most agreeable to you. A carriage awaits your orders, and Ali and Mirtho will accompany you wheresoever you desire to go. There is but one favour I could entreat of you. Speak. Guard carefully the secret of your birth. Make no allusion to the past, nor upon any occasion be induced to pronounce the names of your illustrious father, 
or ill-fated mother. I have already told you, my lord, that I shall see no one. It is possible, Hady, that so perfect a seclusion, though conformable with the habits and customs of the East, may not be practicable in Paris. Endeavour then to accustom yourself to our manner of living in these northern climes, as you did to those of Rome, Florence, Milan, and Madrid. It may be useful to you one of these days, whether you remain here or return to the east. The young girl raised her tearful eyes towards Monte Cristo, as she said with touching earnestness, Whether we return to the east, you mean to say, my lord, do you not? My child, returned Monte Cristo, you know full well that whenever we part, it will be no fault or wish of mine. The tree forsakes not the flower. The flower falls from the tree. My lord, replied Hady, I never will leave you, for I am sure I could not exist without you. My poor girl, in ten years I shall be old, and you will be still young. My father had a long white beard, but I loved him. He was sixty years old, but to me he was handsomer than all the fine youths I saw. Then tell me, Hedy, do you believe you shall be able to accustom yourself to our present mode of life? Shall I see you? Every day. Then what do you fear, my lord? You might find it dull. No, my lord. In the morning I shall rejoice in the prospect of your coming, and in the evening dwell with delight on the happiness I have enjoyed in your presence. Then, too, when alone, I can call forth mighty pictures of the past, see vast horizons bounded only by the towering mountains of Pindus and Olympus. Oh, believe me, that when three great passions, such as sorrow, love, and gratitude, fill the heart, ennui can find no place. You are a worthy daughter of Epirus, Hedy, and your charming and poetical ideas prove well your descent from that race of goddesses who claim your country as their birthplace. Depend on my care to see that your youth is not blighted or suffered to pass away in ungenial solitude, and of this be well assured, that if you love me as a father, I love you as a child. You are wrong, my lord. The love I have for you is very different from the love I had for my father. My father died, but I did not die. If you were to die, I should die too. The Count, with a smile of profound tenderness, extended his hand and she carried it to her lips. Monte Cristo, thus attuned to the interview he proposed to hold with Morel and his family, departed murmuring as he went these lines of Pindar. Youth is a flower of which love is the fruit. Happy is he who, after having watched its silent growth, is permitted to gather and call it his own. The carriage was prepared according to orders, and stepping lightly into it, the Count drove off at his usual rapid pace. End of chapter 49
Chapter 50 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 50 The Morel Family. In a very few minutes, the Count reached number seven in the Rue Meslay. The house was of white stone, and in a small court before it were two small beds full of beautiful flowers. In the concierge that opened the gate, the Count recognized Cocle, but as he had but one eye, and that eye had become somewhat dim in the course of nine years, Cocle did not recognize the Count. The carriages that drove up to the door were compelled to turn, to avoid a fountain that played in a basin of rockwork, an ornament that had excited the jealousy of the whole quarter, and had gained for the place the appellation of the little versailles it is needless to add that there were gold and silver fish in the basin the house with kitchens and cellars below and above the ground floor two stories and attics the whole of the property consisting of an immense workshop two pavilions at the bottom of the garden and the garden itself had been purchased by emmanuel who had seen at a glance that he could make of it a profitable speculation he had received the house and half the garden and building a wall between the garden and the workshops had let them upon lease with the pavilions at the bottom of the garden so that for a trifling sum he was as well lodged and as perfectly shut out from observation as the inhabitants of the finest mansion in the faubourg saint germain the breakfast room was finished in oak the salon in mahogany and the furnishings were of blue velvet the bedroom was in citron wood and green damask there was a study for Emmanuel, who never studied, and had a music-room for Julie, who never played. The whole of the second story was set apart for Maximilian. It was precisely similar to his sister's apartments, except that for the breakfast-parlour he had a billiard-room, where he received his friends. He was superintending the grooming of the horse, and smoking his cigar at the entrance of the garden, when the Count's carriage stopped at the gate. Cochle opened the gate and baptistin springing from the box inquired whether monsieur and madame herbeau and monsieur maximilien morel would see his excellency the count of monte cristo the count of monte cristo cried morel throwing away his cigar and hastening to the carriage i should think we should see him ah a thousand thanks count for not having forgotten your promise and the young officer shook the count's hand as so warmly that monte cristo could not be mistaken as to the sincerity of his joy and he saw that he had been expected with impatience and was received with pleasure come come said maximilian i will serve as your guide such a man as you are ought not to be introduced by a servant my sister is in the garden plucking the dead roses my brother is reading his two papers the press and the debat within six steps of her for wherever you see madame herbeau you have only to look within a circle of four yards and you will find monsieur emmanuel and reciprocally as they say at a polytechnic school at the sound of their steps a young woman of twenty to five and twenty dressed in a silk morning gown and busily engaged in plucking the dead leaves of a noisette rose tree raised her head this was julie who had become as the clerk of the house of thompson and french had predicted 
Madame Emmanuelle Herbault. She uttered a cry of surprise at the sight of a stranger, and Maximilien began to laugh. "'Don't disturb yourself, Julie,' said he. "'The Count has only been two or three days in Paris, but he already knows what a fashionable woman of the Marais is, and if he does not, you will show him.' "'Ah, oh, monsieur,' returned Julie, "'it is treason in my brother to bring you thus.' but he never has any regard for his poor sister penelon penelon an old man who was digging busily at one of the beds stuck his spade in the earth and approached cap in hand striving to conceal a quid of tobacco he had just thrust into his cheek a few locks of grey mingled with his hair which was still thick and matted while his bronzed features and determined glance well suited an old sailor who had braved the heat of the equator and the storms of the tropics i think you hailed me mademoiselle julie said he penelon had still preserved the habit of calling his master's daughter mademoiselle julie and had never been able to change the name to madame herbault penelon replied julie go and inform monsieur emmanuel of this gentleman's visit and maximilian will conduct him to the salon then turning to monte cristo i hope you will permit me to leave you for a few minutes continued she and without awaiting any reply disappeared behind a clump of trees and escaped to the house by a lateral alley i am very sorry to see observed monte cristo to morel that i cause no small disturbance in your house look here said maximilian laughing there is her husband changing his jacket for a coat i assure you you are well known in the room meslay your family appears to be a very happy one said the count as if speaking to himself oh yes i assure you count they want nothing that can render them happy they are young and cheerful they are tenderly attached to each other and with twenty-five thousand francs a year they fancy themselves as rich as Rothschild. Five and twenty thousand francs is not a large sum, however, replied Monte Cristo, with a tone so sweet and gentle that it went to Maximilian's heart like the voice of a father. But they will not be content with that. Your brother-in-law is a barrister, a doctor. He was a merchant, monsieur and had succeeded in the business of my poor father monsieur morel at his death left five hundred thousand francs which were divided between my sister and myself for we were his only children her husband who when he married her had no other patrimony than his noble probity his first-rate ability and his spotless reputation wished to possess as much as his wife he laboured and toiled until he had amassed two hundred and fifty thousand francs six years sufficed to achieve this object oh i assure you sir it was a touching spectacle to see these young creatures destined by their talents for higher stations toiling together and through their unwillingness to change any of the customs of their paternal house taking six years to accomplish what less scrupulous people would have effected in two or three Marseille resounded with their well-earned praises. 
At last, one day, Emmanuel came to his wife, who had just finished making up the accounts. Julie, said he to her, Cochle has just given me the last rouleau of a hundred francs. That completes the two hundred and fifty thousand francs we had fixed as the limits of our gains. Can you content yourself with the small fortune which we shall possess for the future? Listen to me. Our house transacts business to the amount of a million a year, from which we derive an income of forty thousand francs. We can dispose of the business, if we please, in an hour, for I have received a letter from Monsieur Delaunay in which he offers to purchase the goodwill of the house, to unite with his own, for three hundred thousand francs. Advise me what I had better do. Emmanuel, returned my sister, the house of Morel can only be carried on by a Morel. Is it not worth three hundred thousand francs? to save our father's name from the chances of evil fortune and failure. I thought so, replied Manuel, but I wished to have your advice. This is my counsel. Our accounts are made up and our bills paid. All we have to do is to stop the issue of any more and close our office. This was done instantly. It was three o'clock at a quarter past, a merchant presented himself to insure two ships. It was a clear profit of fifteen thousand francs, monsieur, said Emmanuel. Have the goodness to address yourself to Monsieur Delaunay. We have quitted business. How long? inquired the astonished merchant. A quarter of an hour, was the reply. And this is the reason, monsieur, continued Maximilian, of my sister and brother-in-law, having only twenty-five thousand francs a year. Maximilian had scarcely finished his story, during which the Count's heart had swelled within him, when Emmanuel entered, wearing a hat and coat. He saluted the Count with the air of a man who is aware of the rank of his guest. Then, after having led Monte Cristo around the little garden, he returned to the house. A large vase of Japan porcelain, filled with flowers that loaded the air with their perfume, stood in the salon. Julie, suitably dressed and her hair arranged, she had accomplished this feat in less than ten minutes, received the Count on his entrance. The songs of the birds were heard in an aviary hard by, and the branches of the laburnums and rose acacias formed an exquisite framework to the blue velvet curtains. Everything in this charming retreat, from the warble of the birds to the smile of the mistress, breathed tranquillity and repose. The Count had felt the influence of this happiness from the moment he entered the house, and he remained silent and pensive forgetting that he was expected to renew the conversation, which had ceased after the first salutations had been exchanged. The silence became almost painful, when by a violent effort, tearing himself from his pleasing reverie, "'Madame,' said he at length, "'I pray you to excuse my emotion, which must astonish you who are only accustomed to the happiness I meet here. But contentment is so new a sight to me, that I could never be weary of looking at yourself and your husband. "'We are very happy, monsieur,' replied Julie. 
but we have also known unhappiness and few have ever undergone more bitter sufferings than ourselves the count's features displayed an expression of the most intense curiosity oh all this is a family history as chateau renaud told you the other day observed maximilian this humble picture would have but little interest for you accustomed as you are to behold the pleasures and the misfortunes of the wealthy and industrious but such as we are we have experienced bitter sorrows and god has poured balm into your wounds as he does into those of all who are in affliction said monte cristo inquiringly yes count returned julie we may indeed say he has for he has done for us what he grants only to his chosen he sent us one of his angels the count's cheeks became scarlet and he coughed in order to have an excuse for putting his handkerchief to his mouth those born to wealth and who have the means of gratifying every wish said emmanuel know not what is the real happiness of life just as those who have been tossed on the stormy waters of the ocean on a few frail planks can alone realize the blessings of fair weather monte cristo rose and without making any answer for the tremulousness of his voice would have betrayed his emotion walked up and down the apartment with a slow step our magnificence makes you smile count said maximilian who had followed him with his eyes no no returned monte cristo pale as death pressing one hand on his heart to still his throbbings while with the other he pointed to a crystal cover beneath which a silken purse lay on a black velvet cushion i was wondering what could be the significance of this purse with the paper at one end and the large diamond at the other count replied maximilian with an air of gravity those are our most precious family treasures the stone seems very brilliant answered the count oh my brother does not allude to its value although it has been estimated at one hundred thousand francs he means that the articles contained in this purse are the relics of the angel i spoke of just now this i do not comprehend and yet i may not ask for an explanation madame replied monte cristo bowing pardon me i had no intention of committing an indiscretion indiscretion oh you make us happy by giving us an excuse for expatiating on this subject if we wanted to conceal the noble action that purse commemorates we should not expose it thus to view oh would we could relate it everywhere and to every one so that the emotion of our unknown benefactor might reveal his presence ah really said monte cristo in a half stifled voice monsieur returned maximilian raising the glass cover and respectfully kissing the silken purse this has touched the hand of a man who saved my father from suicide us from ruin and our name from shame and disgrace a man by whose matchless benevolence we poor children doomed to want and wretchedness can at present hear every one envying our happy lot this letter 
as he spoke maximilian drew a letter from the purse and gave it to the count this letter was written by him the day that my father had taken a desperate resolution and this diamond was given by the generous unknown to my sister as her dowry monte cristo opened the letter and read it with an indescribable feeling of delight it was the letter written as our readers know to julie and signed sinbad the sailor unknown you say is the man who rendered you this service unknown to you yes we have never had the happiness of pressing his hand continued maximilian we have supplicated heaven in vain to grant us this favor but the whole affair has had a mysterious meaning that we cannot comprehend we have been guided by an invisible hand a hand as powerful as that of an enchanter oh cried julie i have not lost all hope of some day kissing that hand as i now kiss the purse which he has touched four years ago penelon was at trieste penelon count is the old sailor you saw in the garden and who from quartermaster has become gardener penelon when he was at trieste saw on the quay an englishman who was on the point of embarking on board a yacht and he recognized him as the person who called on my father the fifth of june eighteen twenty nine and who wrote me this letter on the fifth of september he felt convinced of his identity but he did not venture to address him an englishman said monte cristo who grew uneasy at the attention with which julie looked at him an englishman you say yes replied maximilian an englishman who represented himself as the confidential clerk of the house of thompson and french at rome it was this that made me start when you said the other day at monsieur de morcerf's that messrs thompson and french were your bankers that happened as i told you in eighteen twenty nine for god's sake tell me did you know this englishman but you tell me also that the house of thompson and french have constantly denied having rendered you this service yes then it is not probable that this englishman may be someone who grateful for a kindness your father had shown him and which he himself had forgotten has taken this method of requiting the obligation everything is possible in this affair even a miracle what was his name asked monte cristo he gave no other name answered julie looking earnestly at the count then that at the end of his letter sinbad the sailor which is evidently not his real name but a fictitious one then noticing that julie was struck with the sound of his voice tell me continued he was he not about my height perhaps a little taller with his chin imprisoned as it were in a high cravat his coat closely buttoned up and constantly taking out his pencil oh do you then know him cried julie whose eyes sparkled with joy no returned monte cristo i only guessed i knew a lord wilmore who was constantly doing actions of this kind without revealing himself he was an eccentric being 
and did not believe in the existence of gratitude oh heaven exclaimed julie clasping her hands in what did he believe he did not credit it at the period which i knew him said monte cristo touched to the heart by the accents of julie's voice but perhaps since then he has had proofs that gratitude does exist and do you know this gentleman monsieur inquired emmanuel oh if you do know him cried julie can you tell us where he is where we can find him maximilian emmanuel if we do but discover him he must believe in the gratitude of the heart monte cristo felt tears start into his eyes and he again walked hastily up and down the room in the name of heaven said maximilian if you know anything of him tell us what it is alas cried monte cristo striving to repress his emotion if lord wilmore was your unknown benefactor i fear you will never see him again i parted from him two years ago at palermo and he was then on the point of setting out for the most remote regions so that i fear he will never return oh monsieur this is cruel of you said julie much affected and the young lady's eyes swam with tears madame replied monte cristo gravely and gazing earnestly on the two liquid pearls that trickled down julie's cheeks had lord wilmore seen what i now see he would become attached to life for the tears you shed would reconcile him to mankind and he held out his hand to julie who gave him hers carried away by the look and accent of the count but continued she lord wilmore had a family or friends he must have known someone can we not oh it is useless to inquire returned the count perhaps after all he was not the man you seek for he was my friend he had no secrets from me and if this had been so he would have confided in me and he told you nothing not a word nothing that would lead you to suppose nothing and yet you speak of him at once ah in such a case one supposes sister sister said maximilian coming to the count's aid monsieur is quite right recollect that our excellent father has often told us it was no englishman that thus saved us monte cristo started what did your father tell you monsieur morel said he eagerly my father thought that this action had been miraculously performed he believed that a benefactor had arisen from the grave to save us oh it was a touching superstition monsieur and although i did not myself believe it i would not for the world have destroyed my father's faith how often did he muse over it and pronounce the name of a dear friend a friend lost to him forever and on his deathbed when the near approach of eternity seemed to have illumined his mind with supernatural light this thought which had until then been but a doubt became a conviction and his last words were maximilian it was edmond dante at these words the count's paleness which had for some time been increasing became alarming 
he could not speak he looked at his watch like a man who has forgotten the hour said a few hurried words to madame herbeau and pressing the hands of emmanuel and maximilian madame said he i trust you you will allow me to visit you occasionally i value your friendship and feel grateful to you for your welcome for this is the first time for many years that i have thus yielded to my feelings and he hastily quitted the apartment this count of monte cristo is a strange man said emmanuel yes answered maximilian but i feel sure he has an excellent heart and that he likes us his voice went to my heart observed julie and two or three times i fancied that i had heard it before End of chapter 50。Chapter 51 of the Count of Monte Cristo about two-thirds of the way along the faubourg saint honore and in the rear of one of the most imposing mansions in this rich neighborhood where the various houses vie with each other for elegance of design and magnificence of construction extended a large garden where the wide-spreading chestnut trees raised their heads high above the walls in a solid rampart and with the coming of every spring scattered a shower of delicate pink and white blossoms into the large stone vases that stood upon the two square pilasters of a curiously wrought iron gate that dated from the time of louis twelfth this noble entrance however in spite of its striking appearance and the graceful effect of the geraniums planted in the two vases as they waved their variegated leaves in the wind and charmed the eye with their scarlet bloom had fallen into utter disuse the proprietors of the mansion had many years before thought it best to confine themselves to the possession of the house itself with its thickly planted courtyard opening into the faubourg saint honore and to the garden shut in by this gate which formerly communicated with a fine kitchen garden of about an acre for the demon of speculation drew a line or in other words projected a street at the farther side of the kitchen garden the street was laid out a name was chosen and posted up on an iron plate but before construction was begun it occurred to the possessor of the property that a handsome sum might be obtained for the ground then devoted to fruits and vegetables by building along the line of the proposed street and so making it a branch of communication with the faubourg saint honore itself one of the most important thoroughfares in the city of paris in matters of speculation however though man proposes money disposes from some such difficulty the newly named street died almost in birth and the purchaser of the kitchen garden having paid a high price for it and being quite unable to find anyone willing to take his bargain off his hands without a considerable loss yet still clinging to the belief that at some future day he should obtain a sum for it that would repay him not only for his past outlay but also the interest upon the capital locked up in his new acquisition contented himself with letting the ground temporarily to some market gardeners 
at a yearly rental of five hundred francs and so as we have said the iron gate leading into the kitchen garden had been closed up and left to rust which bade fair before long to eat of its hinges while to prevent the ignoble glances of the diggers and delvers of the ground from presuming to sully the aristocratic enclosure belonging to the mansion the gate had been boarded up to a height of six feet true the planks were not so closely adjusted but that a hasty peep might be obtained through their interstices but the strict decorum and rigid propriety of the inhabitants of the house left no grounds for apprehending that advantage would be taken of that circumstance horticulture seemed however to have been abandoned in the deserted kitchen garden and where cabbages carrots radishes peas and melons had once flourished a scanty crop of lucerne alone bore evidence of its being deemed worthy of cultivation a small low door gave egress from the walled space we have been describing into the projected street the ground having been abandoned as unproductive by its various renters and had now fallen so completely in general estimation as to return not even the one half per cent it had originally paid toward the house the chestnut trees we have before mentioned rose high above the wall without in any way affecting the growth of other luxuriant shrubs and flowers that eagerly dressed forward to fill up the vacant spaces as though asserting their right to enjoy the boon of light and air at one corner where the foliage became so thick as almost to shut out day a large stone bench and sundry rustic seats indicated that this sheltered spot was either in general favour or particular use by some inhabitant of the house which was faintly discernible through the dense mass of verdure that partially concealed it though situated but a hundred paces off whoever had selected this retired portion of the grounds as the boundary of a walk or as a place for meditation was abundantly justified in the choice by the absence of all glare the cool refreshing shade the screen it afforded from the scorching rays of the sun that found no entrance there even during the burning days of hottest summer the incessant and melodious warbling of birds and the entire removal from either the noise of the street or the bustle of the mansion on the evening of one of the warmest days spring had yet bestowed on the inhabitants of paris might be seen negligently thrown upon the stone bench a book a parasol and a work-basket from which hung a partly embroidered cambric handkerchief while at a little distance from these articles was a young woman standing close to the iron gate endeavouring to discern something on the other side by means of the openings in the planks the earnestness of her attitude and the fixed gaze with which she seemed to seek the object of her wishes proving how much her feelings were interested in the matter at that instant the little side gate leading from the waste ground to the street was noiselessly opened and a tall powerful young man appeared he was dressed in a common grey blouse and velvet cap but his carefully arranged hair beard and moustache all of the richest and glossiest black ill accorded with his plebeian attire after casting a rapid glance around him in order to assure himself that he was unobserved he entered by the small gate and carefully closing and securing it after him proceeded with a hurried step towards the barrier 
at the sight of him she expected though probably not in such a costume the young woman started in terror and was about to make a hasty retreat but the eye of love had already seen even through the narrow chinks of the wooden palisades the movement of the white robe and observed the fluttering of the blue sash pressing his lips close to the planks he exclaimed don't be alarmed valentine it is i again the timid girl found courage to return to the gate saying as she did so and why do you come so late to-day it is almost dinner-time and i had to use no little diplomacy to get rid of my watchful mother-in-law my too devoted maid and my troublesome brother who is always teasing me about coming to work at my embroidery which i am in a fair way never to get done so pray excuse yourself as well as you can for having made me wait and after that tell me why i see you in a dress so singular that at first i did not recognize you dearest valentine said the young man the difference between our respective stations makes me fear to offend you by speaking of my love but yet i cannot find myself in your presence without longing to pour forth my soul and tell you how fondly i adore you if it be but to carry away with me the recollection of such sweet moments i could even thank you for chiding me for it leaves me a gleam of hope that if you did not expect me and that indeed would be worse than vanity to suppose at least i was in your thoughts you asked me the cause of my being late and why i come disguised i will candidly explain the reason of both and i trust to your goodness to pardon me i have chosen a trade a trade oh maximilian how can you jest at a time when we have such deep cause for uneasiness heaven keep me from jesting with that which is far dearer to me than life itself but listen to me valentine and i will tell you all about it i became weary of ranging fields and scaling walls and seriously alarmed at the idea suggested by you that if caught hovering about here your father would very likely have me sent to prison as a thief that would compromise the honor of the french army to say nothing of the fact that the continual presence of a captain of spahis in a place where no warlike projects could be supposed to account for it might well create surprise so i have become a gardener and consequently adopted the costume of my calling what excessive nonsense you talk maximilian nonsense pray do not call what i consider the wisest action of my life by such a name consider by becoming a gardener i effectually screen our meetings from all suspicion or danger i beseech you maximilian to cease trifling and tell me what you really mean simply that having ascertained that the piece of ground on which i stand was to let i made application for it was readily accepted by the proprietor and am now master of this fine crop of lucerne think of that valentine there is nothing now to prevent my building myself a little hut on my plantation and residing not twenty yards from you only imagine what happiness that would afford me i can scarcely contain myself at the bare idea such felicity seems above all price as a thing impossible and unattainable but would you believe that i purchase all this delight joy and happiness for which i would cheerfully have surrendered ten years of my life 
at the small cost of five hundred francs per annum, paid quarterly. Henceforth we have nothing to fear. I am on my own ground, and have an undoubted right to place a ladder against the wall, and to look over when I please, without having any apprehensions of being taken off by the police as a suspicious character. I may also enjoy the precious privilege of assuring you of my fond, faithful, and unalterable affection whenever you visit your favourite bower, unless, indeed, it offends your pride to listen to professions of love from the lips of a poor working-man clad in a blouse and cap. A faint cry of mingled pleasure and surprise escaped from the lips of Valentine, who almost instantly said, in a saddened tone, as though some envious cloud darkened the joy which illumined her heart, "'Alas, no, Maximilian, this must not be, for many reasons. We should presume too much on our own strength, and, like others, perhaps be led astray by our blind confidence in each other's prudence.' "'How can you for an instant entertain so unworthy a thought, dear Valentine? Have I not, from the first blessed hour of our acquaintance, schooled all my words and actions to your sentiments and ideas? And you have, I am sure, the fullest confidence in my honour, when you spoke to me of experiencing a vague and indefinite sense of coming danger. I placed myself blindly and devotedly at your service, asking no other reward than the pleasure of being useful to you. And have I ever since by word or look, given you cause of regret for that having selected me from the numbers that would willingly have sacrificed their lives for you. You told me, my dear Valentine, that you are engaged to Monsieur d'Epinay, and that your father was resolved upon completing the match, and that from his will there was no appeal, as Monsieur de Villefort was never known to change a determination once formed. I kept in the background, as you wished, and waited, not for the decision of your heart or my own, but hoping that Providence would graciously interpose in our behalf, and order events in our favour. But what cared I for delays or difficulties, Valentine, as long as you confess that you love me, and took pity on me? If you will only repeat that avowal now and then, I can endure anything. Ah, oh, Maximilian! "'That is the very thing that makes you so bold, "'and which renders me at once so happy and unhappy "'that I frequently ask myself "'whether it is better for me to endure the harshness of my mother-in-law "'and her blind preference for her own child, "'or to be, as I now am, insensible to any pleasure "'save such as I find in these meetings, "'so fraught with danger to both.' "'I will not admit that word,' returned the young man. It is at once cruel and unjust. Is it possible to find a more submissive slave than myself? You have permitted me to converse with you for time to time, Valentine, but forbidden my ever following you in your walks or elsewhere. Have I not obeyed? And since I found means to enter this enclosure, to exchange a few words with you through the gate, to be close to you without really seeing you, have I ever asked so much as to touch the hem of your gown, or try to pass this barrier which is but a trifle to one of my youth and strength? Never has a complaint or a murmur escaped me. I have been bound by my promises as rigidly as any knight of olden times. 
Come, come, dearest Valentine, confess that what I say is true, lest I be tempted to call you unjust. It is true, said Valentine, as she passed the end of her slender fingers through a small opening in the planks, and permitted Maximilian to press his lips to them. And you are a true and faithful friend, but still you acted from motives of self-interest, my dear Maximilian, for you well know that from the moment in which you had manifested an opposite spirit, all would have been ended between us. You promised to bestow on me the friendly affection of a brother, for I have no friend but yourself upon earth, who am neglected and forgotten by my father, harassed and persecuted by my mother-in-law, and left to the sole companionship of a paralyzed and speechless old man, whose withered hand can no longer press mine, and who can speak to me with the eye of alone, although there still lingers in his heart the warmest tenderness for his poor grandchild. Oh, how bitter a fate is mine, to serve either as a victim or an enemy to all who are stronger than myself, while my only friend and supporter is a living corpse. Indeed, indeed, Maximilian, I am very miserable, and if you love me it must be out of pity. Valentine, replied the young man, deeply affected, I will not say you are all I love in the world, for I dearly prize my sister and brother-in-law, but my affection for them is calm and tranquil, in no manner resembling what I feel for you. When I think of you my heart beats fast, the blood burns in my veins, and I can hardly breathe, but I solemnly promise you to restrain all this ardour, this fervour and intensity of feeling, until you yourself shall require me to render them available in serving or assisting you. Monsieur France is not expecting to return home for a year to come, I am told. In that time many favourable and unforeseen chances may befriend us. Let us, then, hope for the best. Hope is so sweet a comforter. Meanwhile, Valentine, while reproaching me with selfishness, think a little what you have been to me, the beautiful but cold resemblance of a marble Venus. What promise of future reward have you made me for all the submission and obedience I have evinced? None whatever. What granted me? Scarcely more. You tell me of Monsieur Franz Depinay, your betrothed lover, and you shrink from the idea of being his wife. But tell me, Valentine, is there no other sorrow in your heart? You see me devoted to you, body and soul. My life and each warm drop that circles around my heart are consecrated to your service. You know full well that my existence is bound up in yours, that were I to lose you, I would not outlive the hour of such crushing misery. Yet you speak with calmness of the prospect of your being the wife of another. Oh, Valentine, were I in your place, and did I feel conscious, as you do, of being worshipped and adored with such a love as mine, a hundred times at least should I have passed my hand between those iron bars, and said, Take this hand, dearest Maximilian, and believe that, living or dead, I am yours, yours only and forever. The poor girl made no reply, 
but her lover could plainly hear her sobs and tears a rapid change took place in the young man's feelings dearest dearest valentine exclaimed he forgive me if i have offended you and forget the words i spoke if you have unwittingly caused you pain no maximilian i am not offended answered she but do you not see what a poor helpless being i am almost a stranger and an outcast in my father's house where even he is seldom seen whose will has been thwarted and spirits broken from the age of ten years beneath the iron rod so sternly held over me oppressed mortified and persecuted day by day hour by hour minute by minute no person has cared for me even observed my sufferings nor have i ever breathed one word on the subject save to yourself outwardly and in the eyes of the world i am surrounded by kindness and affection but the reverse is the case the general remark is oh it cannot be expected that one of the so stern a character as monsieur villefort could lavish the tenderness some fathers do on their daughters what though she has lost her own mother at a tender age she has had the happiness to find a second mother in madame de villefort the world however is mistaken my father abandons me from utter indifference while my mother-in-law detests me with a hatred so much the more terrible because it is veiled beneath a continual smile hate you sweet valentine exclaimed the young man how is it possible for anyone to do that alas replied the weeping girl i am obliged to own that my mother-in-law's aversion to me arises from a very natural source her overweening love for her own child my brother edward but why should it i do not know but though unwilling to introduce money matters into our present conversation i would just say this much that her extreme dislike to me has its origin there and i much fear she envies me the fortune i enjoy in right of my mother and which will be more than doubled at the death of monsieur and madame de saint Maron, whose sole heiress i am madame de villefort has nothing of her own and hates me for being so richly endowed alas how gladly would i exchange the half of this wealth for the happiness of at least sharing my father's love god knows i would prefer sacrificing the whole so that it would obtain me a happy and affectionate home poor valentine i seem to myself as though living a life of bondage yet at the same time i am so conscious of my own weakness that i fear to break the restraint on which i am held lest i fall utterly helpless then too my father is not a person whose orders may be infringed with impunity protected as he is by his high position and firmly established reputation for talent and unswerving integrity no one could oppose him he is all-powerful even with the king he would crush you at a word dear maximilian believe me when i assure you that if i do not attempt to resist my father's commands 
"'It is more on your account than my own.' "'But why, Valentine, do you persist in anticipating the worst? "'Why picture so gloomy a future?' "'Because I judge it from the past.' "'Still, consider that although I may not be, strictly speaking, "'what is termed an illustrious match for you, "'I am for many reasons not altogether so much beneath your alliance.' The days when such distinctions were so nicely weighed and considered no longer exist in France, and the first families of the monarchy have intermarried with those of the empire. The aristocracy of the lance has allied itself with the nobility of the canon. Now I belong to this last-named class, and certainly my prospects of military preferment are most encouraging as well as certain. My fortune though small is free and unfettered and the memory of my late father is respected in our country valentine as that of the most upright and honourable merchant of the city i say our country because you were born not far from marseilles don't speak of marseilles i beg of you maximilian that one word brings back my mother to my recollection my angel mother who died too soon for myself and all who knew her, but who, after watching over her child during the brief period allotted to her in this world, now, I fondly hope, watches from her home in heaven. Oh, if my mother were still living, there would be nothing to fear, Maximilian, for I would tell her that I loved you, and she would protect us. I fear, Valentine, replied the lover, that were she living, I should never have had the happiness of knowing you. You would then have been too happy to have stooped from your grandeur to bestow a thought on me. "'Now it is you who are unjust, Maximilian,' cried Valentine. "'But there is one thing I wish to know.' "'And what is that?' inquired the young man, perceiving that Valentine hesitated. "'Tell me, truly, Maximilian, whether in former days, when our fathers dwelt at Marseilles, there was ever any misunderstanding between them not that i am aware of replied the young man unless indeed any ill-feeling might have arisen from their being of opposite parties your father was as you know a zealous partisan of the bourbon while mine was wholly devoted to the emperor there could not possibly be any other difference between them but why do you ask i will tell you replied the young girl for it is but right you should know. Well, on the day when your appointment as an officer of the Legion of Honour was announced in the papers, we were all sitting with my grandfather, Monsieur Noirtier. Monsieur Danglars was there also. Uh, you re recollect Monsieur Danglars, do you not? Maximilian, the banker whose horses ran away with my mother-in-law and little brother, and very nearly killed them. While the rest of the company were discussing the approaching marriage of Mademoiselle Danglars, I was reading the paper to my grandfather, but when I came to the paragraph about you, although I had done nothing else but read it over to myself all the morning, you know you had told me all about it the previous evening, I felt so happy and yet so nervous at the idea of speaking your name aloud and before so many people that I really think I should have passed it over, but for the fear that my doing so might create suspicions as to the cause of my silence. So 
I summoned up all my courage, and read it as firmly and as steadily as I could. Dear Valentine, well, would you believe it? Directly my father caught the sound of your name, he turned round quite hastily, and like a poor silly thing, I was so persuaded that everyone must be as much affected as myself by the utterance of your name that I was not surprised to see my father start and almost tremble. But I even thought, though that surely must have been a mistake, that Monsieur Danglars trembled too. Morel, Morel, cried my father, stop a bit. Then knitting his brows into a deep frown, he added, Surely this cannot be one of the Morel family who lived at Marseilles and gave us so much trouble from the violent Bonapartism, I mean about the year 1815. Yes, replied Monsieur Danglars, I believe he is the son of the old shipowner. Indeed, answered Maximilian. And what did your father say then, Valentine? Oh, such a dreadful thing that I don't dare to tell you. Always tell me everything, said Maximilian with a smile. Ah, continued my father, still frowning, their idolized emperor treated these madmen as they deserved. He called them food for powder, which was precisely all they were good for, and I am delighted to see that the present gouvernement have adopted this salutary principle with all its pristine vigour. If Algiers were good for nothing but to furnish the means of carrying so admirable an idea into practice, it would be an acquisition well worthy of struggling to obtain. Though it certainly does cost France somewhat dear to assert her rights in that uncivilized country. Brutal politics, I must confess, said Maximilian. But don't attach any serious importance, dear, to what your father said. My father was not a bit behind yours in that sort of talk. Why, said he, does not the emperor, who has devised so many clever and efficient modes of improving the art of war, organize a regiment of lawyers, judges, and legal practitioners, sending them in the hottest fire the enemy could maintain, and using them to save better men? You see, my dear, that for picturesque expression and generosity of spirit, there is not much to choose between the language of either party. But what did Monsieur Danglars say to this outburst on the part of the procureur? Oh, he laughed, and in that singular manner so peculiar to himself, half malicious, half ferocious, he almost immediately got up and took his leave. Then, for the first time, I observed the agitation of my grandfather. And I must tell you, Maximilian, that I am the only person capable of discerning emotion in his paralyzed frame. And I suspected that the conversation that had been carried on in his presence, for they always say and do what they like before the dear old man without the smallest regard for his feelings, had made a strong impression on his mind. For, naturally enough, it must have pained him to hear the emperor he so devotedly loved and served spoken of in that depreciating manner. The name of Monsieur Noirtier, interposed Maximilian, is celebrated throughout Europe. He was a statesman of high standing, and you may or may not know, Valentine, 
that he took a leading part in every Bonapartist conspiracy set on foot during the restoration of the Bourbon. Oh, I have often heard whispers of things that seem to me most strange. The father, a Bonapartist, the son, a Royalist. What can have been that reason of so singular a difference in parties and politics? But to resume my story, I turned towards my grandfather, as though to question him as to the cause of his emotion. He looked expressively at the newspaper I had been reading. "'What is the matter, dear grandfather?' said I. "'Are you pleased?' He gave me a sign in the affirmative. "'With what my father said just now?' He returned the sign in the negative. "'Perhaps you liked what Monsieur Donglar said?' "'Another sign in the negative.' "'Oh, then, you were glad to hear that Monsieur Morel, "'I didn't dare to say Maximilian, "'had been made an officer of the Legion of Honour? "'He signified assent. "'Only think of the poor old man's being so pleased "'to think that you, who were a perfect stranger to him, "'had been made an officer of the Legion of Honour. "'Perhaps it was a mere whim on his part, "'for he is falling, they say, into second childhood. "'But I love him for showing so much interest in you.' "'How singular,' murmured Maximilian. "'Your father hates me, while your grandfather, on the contrary, "'what strange feelings are aroused by politics?' "'Hush!' cried Valentine, suddenly. "'Someone is coming.' Maximilian leaped into one bound into his crop of lucerne, which he began to pull up in the most ruthless way, under the pretext of being occupied in weeding it. "'Mademoiselle! Mademoiselle!' exclaimed a voice from behind the trees. "'Madame is searching for you, everywhere, where there is a visitor in the drawing-room.' "'A visitor?' inquired Valentine, much agitated. "'Who is it?' "'Some grand personage, a prince, I believe they said, the Count of Monte Cristo.' "'I will come directly,' cried Valentine aloud. The name of Monte Cristo sent an electric shock through the young man on the other side of the iron gate to whom Valentine's I am coming, was the customary signal of farewell. Now then, said Maximilian, leaning on the handle of his spade, I would give a good deal to know how it comes about that the Count of Monte Cristo is acquainted with Monsieur de Villefort. End of chapter 51《Chapter 52 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 52 Toxicology. It was really the Count of Monte Cristo who had just arrived at Madame de Villefort's for the purpose of returning the procureur's visit, and at his name, as may be easily imagined, the whole house was in confusion. Madame de Villefort, who was alone in her drawing-room when the Count was announced, desired that her son might be brought thither instantly to renew his thanks to the Count. And Edward, who heard this great personage talked of for two whole days, made all possible haste to come to him, not from obedience to his mother, or out of any feeling of gratitude to the Count, but from sheer curiosity. 
and that some chance remark might give him the opportunity for making one of the impertinent speeches which made his mother say oh that naughty child but i can't be severe with him he is really so bright after the usual civilities the count inquired after monsieur de villefort my husband dines with the chancellor replied the young lady he has just gone and i am sure he'll be exceedingly sorry not to have had the pleasure of seeing you before he went two visitors who were there when the count arrived having gazed at him with all their eyes retired after that reasonable delay which politeness admits and curiosity requires what is your sister valentine doing inquired madame de villefort of edward tell someone to bid her come here that i may have the honour of introducing her to the count you have a daughter then madame inquired the count very young i presume the daughter of monsieur de villefort by his first marriage replied the young wife a fine well-grown girl but melancholy interrupted master edward snatching the feathers out of the tail of a splendid paroquet that was screaming on its gilded perch in order to make a plume for his hat madame de villefort merely cried be still edward she then added this young madcap is however very nearly right and merely re-echoes what he has heard me say with pain a hundred times for mademoiselle de villefort is in spite of all we can do to rouse her of a melancholy disposition and taciturn habit which frequently injure the effect of her beauty but what detains her go edward and see because they are looking for her where she is not to be found and where are you looking for her with grandpa noirtier and do you think she is not there no 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 she is not there replied edward singing his words and where is she then if you know why don't you tell she is under the big chestnut tree replied the spoiled brat as he gave in spite of his mother's commands live flies to the parrot which seemed keenly to relish such fare madame de villefort stretched out her hand to ring intending to direct her waiting-maid to the spot where she would find valentine when the young lady herself entered the apartment she appeared much dejected and any person who considered her attentively might have observed the traces of recent tears in her eyes valentine whom we have in the rapid march of our narrative presented to our readers without formally introducing her was a tall and graceful girl of nineteen with bright chestnut hair deep blue eyes and that reposeful air of quiet distinction which characterized her mother her white and slender fingers her pearly neck her cheeks tinted with varying hues reminded one of the lovely englishwomen who have been so poetically compared in their manner to the gracefulness of a swan she entered the apartment and seeing near her stepmother the stranger of whom she had already heard so much saluted him without any girlish awkwardness or even lowering her eyes and with an elegance that redoubled the count's attention he rose to return the salutation mademoiselle de villefort my daughter-in-law said madame de villefort to monte cristo leaning back on her sofa and motioning towards valentine with her hand 
"'And Monsieur de Monte Cristo, King of China, Emperor of Cochin, China,' said the young imp, looking slyly towards his sister. Madame de Villefort at this really did turn pale, and was very nearly angry with this household plague who answered to the name of Edward. But the Count, on the contrary, smiled and appeared to look at the boy complacently, which caused the maternal heart to bound again with joy and enthusiasm. "'But, madame,' replied the Count, continuing the conversation, and looking by turns at Madame de Villefort and Valentine, "'have I not already had the honour of meeting yourself and Mademoiselle before? I could not help thinking so just now. The idea came over my mind, and as Mademoiselle entered, the sight of her was an additional ray of light thrown on a confused remembrance.' excuse the remark i do not think it likely sir mademoiselle de villefort is not very fond of society and we very seldom go out said the young lady then it was not in society that i met with mademoiselle or yourself madame or this charming little merry boy besides the parisian world is entirely unknown to me for as i believe i told you I have been in Paris for very few days. No, but perhaps you will permit me to call to mind. Stay. The Count placed his hand on his brow as if to collect his thoughts. No, uh, it was somewhere away from here. It was. I do not know, but it appears that this recollection is connected with a lovely sky and some religious fete mademoiselle was holding flowers in her hand the interesting boy was chasing a beautiful peacock in a garden and you madame were under the trellis of some arbour pray come to my aid madame do not these circumstances appeal to your memory no indeed replied madame de villefort and yet it appears to me sir that if i had met you anywhere the recollection of you must have been imprinted on my memory perhaps the count saw us in italy said valentine timidly yes in italy it was in italy most probably replied monte cristo you have travelled then in italy mademoiselle yes madame and i were there two years ago the doctors anxious for my lungs prescribed the air of naples we went by bologna perugia and rome ah yes true mademoiselle exclaimed monte cristo as if this simple explanation was sufficient to revive the recollection he sought it was at perugia on corpus christi day in the garden of the hotel de poste when chance brought us together you madame de villefort and her son i now remember having had the honour of meeting you i perfectly well remember perugia sir and the hotel de poste and the festival of which you speak said madame de villefort but in vain do i tax my memory of whose treachery i am ashamed for i really do not recall to mind that i ever had the pleasure of seeing you before it is strange but neither do i recollect meeting with you observed valentine raising her beautiful eyes to the count but i remember it perfectly interposed the darling edward i will assist your memory madame continued the count 
the day had been burning hot you were waiting for horses which were delayed in consequence of the festival mademoiselle was walking in the shade of the garden and your son disappeared in pursuit of the peacock and i caught it mamma don't you remember interposed edward and i pulled three such beautiful feathers out of his tail you madame remained under the arbor do you not remember that while you were seated on a stone bench and while as i told you mademoiselle de villefort and your young son were absent you conversed for a considerable time with somebody yes in truth yes answered the young lady turning very red i do remember conversing with a person wrapped in a long woolen mantle he was a medical man i think precisely so madame this man was myself for a fortnight i had been at the hotel during which period i had cured my valet de chambre of a fever and my landlord of the jaundice so that i really acquired a reputation as a skilful physician we discoursed a long time madame on different subjects of perugino of raffaele of manners customs of the famous aqua tofana of which they had told you i think you said that certain individuals in perugia had preserved the secret yes true replied madame de villefort somewhat uneasily i remember now i do not recollect now all the various subjects of which we discoursed madame continued the count with perfect calmness but i perfectly remember that falling into the error which others have entertained respecting me you consulted me as to the health of mademoiselle de villefort yes really sir you were in fact a medical man said madame de villefort since you had cured the sick moliere or beaumarchais would reply to you madame that it was precisely because i was not that i had cured my patients for myself i am content to say to you that i have studied chemistry and the natural sciences somewhat deeply but still only as an amateur you understand at this moment the clock struck six it is six o'clock said madame de villefort evidently agitated valentine will you not go and see if your grandpapa will have his dinner valentine rose and saluting the count left the apartment without speaking oh madame said the count where valentine had left the room was it on my account that you sent mademoiselle de villefort away by no means replied the young lady quickly but this is the hour when we usually give monsieur noirtier the unwelcome meal that sustains his pitiful existence you are aware sir of the deplorable condition of my husband's father yes madame monsieur de villefort spoke of it to me a paralysis i think alas yes the poor old gentleman is entirely helpless the mind alone is still active in this human machine and that is faint and flickering like the light of a lamp about to expire but excuse me sir for talking of our domestic misfortunes i interrupted you at the moment when you were telling me that you were a skilful chemist no madame i did not say as much as that replied the count with a smile quite the contrary i have studied chemistry because 
having determined to live in eastern climates, I have been desirous of following the example of King Mithridates. Mithridates Rex Ponticus, said the young scamp, as he tore some beautiful portraits out of a splendid album. The individual who took cream in his cup of poison every morning at breakfast. Edward, you naughty boy, exclaimed Madame de Villefort, snatching the mutilated book from the urchin's grasp. You are positively past bearing. You really disturb the conversation. Go, leave us and join your sister Valentine in dear Grandpapa Noirtier's room. The album, said Edward sulkily. What do you mean? the album i want the album how dare you tear out the drawings oh it amuses me go go at once i won't go unless you give me the album said the boy seating himself doggedly in an armchair according to his habit of never giving way take it then and pray disturb us no longer said madame de villefort giving the album to edward who then went towards the door led by his mother the Count followed her with his eyes. "'Let us see if she shuts the door after him,' he muttered. Madame de Villefort closed the door carefully after the child, the Count, appearing not to notice her, then casting a scrutinizing glance around the chamber, the young wife returned to her chair, in which she seated herself. "'Allow me to observe, madame,' said the Count, with that kind tone he could assume so well. "'You are really very severe with that dear, clever child.' "'Oh, sometimes severity is quite necessary,' replied Madame de Villefort, with all a mother's real firmness. "'It was his Cornelius Napos that Master Edward was repeating when he referred to King Mithridates,' continued the Count and you interrupted him in a quotation which proves that his tutor has by no means neglected him, for your son is really advanced for his years. The fact is, Count, answered the mother, agreeably flattered, he has a great aptitude, and learns all that is set before him. He has but one fault. He is somewhat willful. But really, on referring for the moment to what he said, do you truly believe that Mithridates used these precautions, and that these precautions were efficacious? I think so, madame, because I myself have made use of them, that I might not be poisoned at Naples, at Palermo, and at Smyrna. That is to say, on three several occasions when, but for these precautions, I must have lost my life. And... "'Your precautions were successful?' "'Completely so.' "'Yes, I remember now you mentioning to me at Perugia something of this sort.' "'Indeed,' said the Count with an air of surprise, remarkably well counterfeited. "'I really did not remember.' "'I inquired of you if poisons acted equally and with the same effect on men of the North as on men of the South.' and you answered me that the cold and sluggish habits of the north did not present the same aptitude as the rich and energetic temperaments of the natives of the south. And that is the case, observed Monte Cristo. I have seen Russians devour, without being visibly inconvenienced, vegetable substances 
which would infallibly have killed a neapolitan or an arab and you really believe the result would be still more sure with us than in the east and in the midst of our fogs and rains a man would habituate himself more easily than in a warm latitude to the progressive absorption of poison certainly it being at the same time perfectly understood that he should have been duly fortified against the poison to which he had not been accustomed yes i understand that and how would you habituate yourself for instance or rather how did you habituate yourself to it oh very easily suppose you knew beforehand the poison that would be made use of against you suppose the poison was for instance brucine brucine is extracted from the false aragostura is it not inquired madame de villefort precisely madame replied monte cristo but i perceive i have not much to teach you allow me to compliment you on your knowledge such learning is very rare among ladies oh i am aware of that said madame de villefort but i have a passion for the occult sciences which speak to the imagination like poetry and are reducible to figures like an algebraic equation but go on i beg of you what you say interests me to the greatest degree well replied monte cristo suppose then that this poison was brucine and you were to take a milligram the first day two milligrams the second day and so on well at the end of ten days you would have taken a centigram at the end of twenty days increasing another milligram you would have taken three hundred centigrams that is to say a dose which you would support without inconvenience and which would be very dangerous for any other person who had not taken the same precautions as yourself well then at the end of a month when drinking water from the same carafe you would kill the person who drank with you without your perceiving otherwise than from slight inconvenience that there was any poisonous substance mingled with this water do you know any other counter poisons i do not i have often read and read again the history of mithridates said madame de villefort in a tone of reflection and had always considered it a fable no madame contrary to most history it is true but what you tell me madame what you inquire of me is not the result of a chance query for two years ago you asked me the same questions and said then that for a very long time this history of mithridates had occupied your mind true sir the two favorite studies of my youth were botany and mineralogy and subsequently when i learned that the use of simples frequently explained the whole history of a people and the entire life of individuals in the east as flowers betoken and symbolize a love affair i have regretted that i was not a man that i might have been a flamel a fontana or a cabanis and the more madame said monte cristo as the orientals do not confine themselves as did mithridates to make a cuirass of his poisons but they also made them a dagger 
science becomes in their hands not only a defensive weapon but still more frequently an offensive one the one serves against all their physical sufferings the other against all their enemies with opium belladonna brucea snakewood and the cherry laurel they put to sleep all who stand in their way there is not one of those women egyptian turkish or greek whom here you call good women who do not know how by means of chemistry to stupefy a doctor and in psychology to amaze a confessor really said madame de villefort whose eyes sparkled with strange fire at this conversation oh yes indeed madame continued monte cristo the secret dramas of the east begin with a love philtre and end with a death potion begin with paradise and end with hell there are as many elixirs of every kind as there are caprices and peculiarities in the physical and moral nature of humanity and i will say further the art of these chemists is capable with the utmost precision to accommodate and proportion the remedy and the bane to yearnings for love or desires for vengeance but sir remarked the young woman these eastern societies in the midst of which you have passed a portion of your existence are as fantastic as the tales that come from their strange land a man can easily be put out of the way there then it is indeed the baghdad and bassors of the thousand and one nights the sultans and the viziers who rule over society there and who constitute what in france we call the gouvernement are really haroun al rashids and glaffars who not only pardon a poisoner but even make him a prime minister if his crime has been an ingenious one and who under such circumstance have the whole story written in letters of gold to divert their hours of idleness and ennui by no means madame the fanciful exists no longer in the east there disguised under other names and concealed under other costumes are police agents magistrates attorneys general and bailiffs they hang behead and impale their criminals in the most agreeable possible manner but some of these like clever rogues have contrived to escape human justice and succeed in their fraudulent enterprises by cunning stratagems amongst us a simpleton possessed by the demon of hate or cupidity who has an enemy to destroy or some near relation to dispose of goes straight to the grocers or druggists gives a false name which leads more easily to his detection than his real one and under the pretext that the rats prevent him from sleeping purchases five or six grams of arsenic if he is really a cunning fellow he goes to five or six different druggists or grocers and thereby becomes only five or six times more easily traced then when he has acquired his specific he administers duly to his enemy or near kinsman a dose of arsenic which would make a mammoth or mastodon burst and which without rhyme or reason makes his victim utter groans which alarm the entire neighborhood 
then arrive a crowd of policemen and constables they fetch a doctor who opens the dead body and collects from the entrails and stomach a quantity of arsenic in a spoon next day a hundred newspapers relate the fact with the names of the victim and the murderer the same evening the grocer or grocers druggists or drogists come and say it was i who sold the arsenic to the gentleman and rather than not recognize the guilty purchaser they will recognize twenty then the foolish criminal is taken imprisoned interrogated confronted confounded condemned and cut off by hemp or steel or if she be a woman of any consideration they lock her up for life this is the way in which you northerns understand chemistry madame Derues was however i must confess more skilful what would you have sir said the lady laughing we do what we can all the world is not the secret of the medicis or the borgias now replied the count shrugging his shoulders shall i tell you the cause of all these stupidities it is because at your theatres by what at least i could judge by reading the pieces they play they see persons swallow the contents of a file or suck the button of a ring and fall dead instantly five minutes afterwards the curtain falls and the spectators depart they are ignorant of the consequences of the murder they see neither the police commissary with his badge of office nor the corporal with his four men and so the poor fools believe that the whole thing is as easy as lying but go a little way from france go either to aleppo or cairo or only to naples or roma and you will see people passing by you in the streets people erect smiling and fresh-coloured of whom asmodeus if you were holding on by the skirt of his mantle would say that man was poisoned three weeks ago he will be a dead man in a month then remarked madame de villefort they have again discovered the secret of the famous aquatofana that they said was lost at perugia ah but madame does mankind ever lose anything the arts change about and make a tour of the world things take a different name and the vulgar do not follow them that is all but there is always the same result poisons act particularly on some organ or another one on the stomach another on the brain another on the intestines well the poison brings on a cough the cough an inflammation of the lungs or some other complaint catalogued in the book of science which however by no means precludes it from being decidedly mortal and if it were not would be sure to become so thanks to the remedies applied by foolish doctors who are generally bad chemists and which will act in favour of or against the malady as you please and then there is a human being killed according to all the rules of art and skill and of whom justice learns nothing as was said by a terrible chemist of my acquaintance the worthy abbe adelmonte of taormina in sicily who has studied these national phenomena very profoundly 
"'It is quite frightful, but deeply interesting,' said the young lady, motionless with attention. "'I thought, I must confess, that these tales were inventions of the Middle Ages.' "'Yes, no doubt, but improved upon by ours. "'What is the use of time, rewards of merit, medals, crosses, Montheon prizes, if they do not lead society towards one more complete perfection?' yet man will never be perfect until he learns to create and destroy he does know how to destroy and that is half the battle so added madame de villefort constantly returning to her object the poisons of the borgias the medicis the rennes the ruggieris and later probably that of baron de trenck whose story has been so misused by modern drama and romance were objects of art madame and nothing more replied the count do you suppose that the real savant addresses himself stupidly to the mere individual by no means science loves eccentricities leaps and bounds trials of strength fancies if i may be allowed so to term them thus for instance the excellent abbe adelmonte of whom i spoke just now made in this way some marvellous experiments really yes i will mention one to you he had a remarkably fine garden full of vegetables flowers and fruit from amongst these vegetables he selected the most simple a cabbage for instance for three days he watered this cabbage with a distillation of arsenic on the third the cabbage began to droop and turn yellow at that moment he cut it in the eyes of everybody it seemed fit for table and preserved its wholesome appearance it was only poisoned to the abbe adelmonte he then took the cabbage to the room where he had rabbits for the abbe adelmonte had a collection of rabbits cats and guinea pigs fully as fine as his collection of vegetables flowers and fruit well the abbe adelmonte took a rabbit and made it eat a leaf of the cabbage the rabbit died what magistrate would find or even venture to insinuate anything against this what procureur has ever ventured to draw up an accusation against monsieur majondi or monsieur Florence? in consequence of the rabbits cats and guinea pigs they have killed not one so then the rabbit dies and justice takes no notice this rabbit dead the abbe adelmonte has its entrails taken out by his cook and thrown on the dunghill on this dunghill is a hen who pecking these intestines is in her turn taken ill and dies the next day at the moment when she is struggling in the convulsions of death a vulture is flying by there are a good many vultures in adelmonte's country this bird darts on the dead fowl and carries it away to a rock where it dines off its prey three days afterwards this poor vulture which has been very much indisposed since that dinner 
suddenly feels very giddy while flying aloft in the clouds and falls heavily into a fish pond the pike eels and carp eat greedily always as everybody knows well they feast on the vulture now suppose that next day one of these eels or pike or carp poisoned at the fourth remove is served up at your table well then your guest will be poisoned at the fifth remove and die at the end of eight or ten days of pains in the intestines sickness or abscesses of the pylorus the doctors open the body and say with an air of profound learning the subject has died of a tumour on the liver or of typhoid fever but remarked madame de villefort all these circumstances which you link thus to one another may be broken by the least accident the vulture may not see the fowl or may fall a hundred yards from the fish pond ah that is where the art comes in to be a great chemist in the east one must direct a chance and this is to be achieved madame de villefort was in deep thought yet listened attentively but she exclaimed suddenly arsenic is indelible indestructible in whatsoever way it is absorbed it will be found again in the body of the victim from the moment when it was being taken and sufficient quantity to cause death precisely so cried monte cristo precisely so and this is what i say to my worthy adamante he reflected smiled and replied to me by a sicilian proverb which i believe is also a french proverb my son the world was not made in a day but in seven return on sunday on the sunday following i did return to him instead of having watered his cabbage with arsenic he had watered it this time with a solution of salts having their basis in strychnine strychnos colubrina as the learned term it now the cabbage had not the slightest appearance of disease in the world and the rabbit had not the smallest distrust yet five minutes afterwards the rabbit was dead the fowl pecked at the rabbit and the next day was a dead hen this time we were the vultures so we opened the bird and this time all special symptoms had disappeared there were only general symptoms there was no peculiar indication in any organ an excitement of the nervous system that was it a case of cerebral congestion nothing more the fowl had not been poisoned she had died of apoplexy apoplexy is a rare disease among fowls i believe but very common among men madame de villefort appeared more and more thoughtful it is very fortunate she observed that such substance could only be prepared by chemists otherwise all the world would be poisoning each other by chemists and persons who have a taste for chemistry said monte cristo carelessly and then said madame de villefort endeavouring by a struggle and with effort to get away from her thoughts however skilfully it is prepared crime is always crime and if it avoids human scrutiny 
it does not escape the eye of god the orientals are stronger than we are in the case of conscience and very prudently have no hell that is the point really madame this is a scruple which naturally must occur to a pure mind like yours but which would easily yield before sound reasoning the bad side of human thought will always be defined by the paradox of jean-jacques rousseau you remember the mandarin who is killed five hundred leagues off by raising the tip of the finger man's whole life passes in doing these things and his intellect is exhausted by reflecting on them you will find very few persons who will go and brutally thrust a knife in the heart of a fellow creature or will administer to him in order to remove him from the surface of the globe on which we move with life and animation that quantity of arsenic of which we just now talked such a thing is really out of rule eccentric or stupid to attain such a point the blood must be heated to thirty-six degrees the pulse be at least at ninety and the feelings excited beyond the ordinary limit but suppose one pass as it permissible in philology from the word itself to its softened synonym then instead of committing an ignoble assassination you make an elimination you merely and simply remove from your path the individual who is in your way and that without shock or violence without the display of the sufferings which in the case of becoming a punishment make a martyr of the victim and a butcher in every sense of the word of him who inflicts them then there will be no blood no groans no convulsions and above all no consciousness of that horrid and compromising moment of accomplishing the act then one escapes the clutch of the human law which says do not disturb society this is the mode in which they manage these things and succeed in eastern climes where there are grave and phlegmatic persons who care very little for the questions of time in conjunctures of importance yet conscience remains remarked madame de villefort in an agitated voice and with a stifled sigh yes answered monte cristo happily yes conscience does remain and if it did not how wretched we should be after every action requiring exertion it is conscience that saves us for it supplies us with a thousand good excuses of which we alone are judges and these reasons howsoever excellent in producing sleep would avail us but very little before a tribunal when we were tried for our lives thus richard the third for instance was marvellously served by his conscience after the putting away of the two children of edward the fourth in fact he could say these two children of a cruel and persecuting king who have inherited the vices of their father which i alone could perceive in their juvenile propensities these two children are impediments in my way of promoting the happiness of the english people whose unhappiness they the children would infallibly have caused 
thus was lady macbeth served by her conscience when she sought to give her son and not her husband whatever shakespeare may say a throne ah maternal love is a great virtue a powerful motive so powerful that it excuses a multitude of things even if after duncan's death lady macbeth had been at all pricked by her conscience madame de villefort listened with avidity to these appalling maxims and horrible paradoxes delivered by the count with that ironical simplicity which was peculiar to him after a moment's silence the lady inquired do you know my dear count she said that you are a very terrible reasoner and that you look at the world through a somewhat distempered medium have you really measured the world by scrutinies or through alembics and crucibles for you must indeed be a great chemist and the elixir you administered to my son which recalled him to life almost instantaneously oh do not place any reliance on that madame one drop of that elixir suffered to recall life to a dying child but three drops would have impelled the blood into his lungs in such a way as to have produced most violent palpitations six would have suspended his respiration and caused syncopia more so serious than that in which he was ten would have destroyed him you know madam how suddenly i snatched him from those files which he so imprudently touched is it then so terrible a poison oh no in the first place let us agree that the word poison does not exist because in medicine use is made of the most violent poisons which become according as they are employed most salutary remedies what then is it a skilful preparation of my friends the worthy abbe adelmonte who taught me the use of it oh observed madame de villefort it must be an admirable antispasmodic perfect madame as you have seen replied the count and i frequently make use of it with all possible prudence though be it observed he added with a smile of intelligence most assuredly responded madame de villefort in the same tone as for me so nervous and so subject to fainting fits i would require a doctor adelmonte to invent for me some means of breathing freely and tranquilizing my mind in the fear i have of dying some fine day of suffocation in the meanwhile as the thing is difficult to find in france and your abbe is not probably disposed to make a journey to paris on my account i must continue to use monsieur planche's antispasmodics and mint and hoffman's drops are among my favorite remedies here are some lozenges which i have made up on purpose they are compounded doubly strong monte cristo opened the tortoise-shell box which the lady presented to him and inhaled the odor of the lozenges with the air of an amateur who thoroughly appreciated their composition they are indeed exquisite he said but as they are necessarily submitted to the process of deglutition 
a function which is frequently impossible for a fainting person to accomplish. I prefer my own specific. Undoubtedly, and so should I prefer it, after the effects I have seen produced. But of course it is a secret, and I am not so indiscreet as to ask it of you. But I, said Monte Cristo, rising as he spoke, I am gallant enough to offer it to you. How kind you are! Only remember one thing. A small dose is a remedy. A large one is a poison. One drop will restore life, as you have seen. Five or six will inevitably kill. And in a way the more terrible inasmuch as, poured into a glass of wine, it would not in the slightest degree affect its flavour. But I say no more, madame. It is really as if I were prescribing for you. The clock struck half-past six, and the lady was announced, a friend of Madame de Villefort, who came to dine with her. "'If I had the honour of seeing you for the third or fourth time, Count, instead of only for the second, said Madame de Villefort, "'if I had had the honour of being your friend, instead of only having the happiness of being under an obligation to you, I should insist on detaining you to dinner, and not allow myself to be daunted by a first refusal.' "'A thousand thanks, madame,' replied Monte Cristo. "'But I have an engagement which I cannot break. "'I have promised to escort to the Academy a Greek princess of my acquaintance, "'who has never seen your grand opera, "'and who relies on me to conduct her thither.' "'Adieu, then, sir, and do not forget the prescription.' "'Ah, in truth, madame, to do that I must forget the hour's conversation I have had with you.' which is indeed impossible. Monte Cristo bowed and left the house. Madame de Villefort remained immersed in thought. "'He is a very strange man,' she said, "'and in my opinion is himself the Adelmonte he talks about.' As to Monte Cristo, the result had surpassed his utmost expectations. "'Good,' said he, as he went away, this is a fruitful soil, and I feel certain that the seed sown will not be cast on barren ground. Next morning, faithful to his promise, he sent the prescription requested. End of chapter 52「Chapter 53 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 53 Robert le Diable. The pretext of an opera engagement was so much the more feasible as there chanced to be on that very night a more than ordinary attraction at the Academie Royale. Levasseur, who had been suffering under severe illness, made his reappearance in the character of Bertrand, and, as usual, the announcement of the most admired production of the favourite composer of the day had attracted a brilliant and fashionable audience. Morcerf, like most other young men of rank and fortune, had his orchestra stall, with the certainty of always finding a seat in at least a dozen of the principal boxes occupied by persons of his acquaintance. He had, moreover, his right of entry into the omnibus box, 
Chateau Renault, rented a stall beside his own, while Beauchamp, as a journalist, had unlimited range all over the theatre. It happened that, on this particular night, the minister's box was placed at the disposal of Lucien de Bray, who offered it to the Comte de Morcerf, who again, upon his mother's rejection of it, sent it to Donglars, with an intimation that he should probably do himself the honour of joining the baroness and her daughter during the evening, in the event of their accepting the box in question. The ladies received the offer with too much pleasure to dream of a refusal. To no class of persons is the presentation of a gratuitous opera box more acceptable than to the wealthy millionaire who still hugs economy while boasting of carrying a king's ransom in his waistcoat pocket. Danglars had, however, protested against showing himself in a ministerial box, declaring that his political principles and his parliamentary position as member of the opposition party would not permit him so to commit himself. The baroness had, therefore, dispatched a note to Lucien de Bray, bidding him call for them, it being wholly impossible for her to go alone with Eugenie to the opera. There is no gainsaying the fact that a very unfavourable construction would have been put upon the circumstance if the two women had gone without escort, while the addition of a third, in the person of her mother's admitted lover, enabled Mademoiselle Donglars to defy malice and ill-nature. One must take the world as one finds it. The curtain rose, as usual, to an almost empty house, it being one of the absurdities of Parisian fashion never to appear at the opera until after the beginning of the performance, so that the first act is generally played without the slightest attention being paid to it, that part of the audience already assembled being too much occupied in observing the fresh arrivals, while nothing is heard but the noise of opening and shutting doors and the buzz of conversation. "'Charlie,' said Albert, as the door of a box on the first circle opened, "'that must be the Countess G.' "'And who is the Countess G?' inquired Chateau "'What a question! Now do you know, Baronne, I have a great mind to pick up quarrel with you for asking it. As if all the world did not know who the Countess G was!' "'Ah, to be sure,' replied Chateau Renaud. "'The lovely Venetian, is it not? Herself!' At this moment the Countess perceived Albert, and returned his salutation with a smile. "'You know her, it seems,' said Chateau Renaud. "'France, introduce me to her at Rome,' replied Albert. "'Well, then, will you do as much for me in Paris as France did for you in Rome?' "'With pleasure.' There was a cry of, "'Shut up!' from the audience. This manifestation on the part of the spectators of their wish to be allowed to hear the music produced not the slightest effect on the two young men, who continued their conversation." "'The Countess was present at the races in the Champ de Mars,' said Chateau Renaud. "'Today?' "'Yes.' "'Bless me, I quite forgot the races. Did you bet?' "'Oh, Milia, poultry fifty louis.' "'And who was the winner?' "'Nautilus. I staked on him.' "'But there were three races, were there not?' "'Yes, there was the prize given by the jockey club. A gold cup, you know, and a very singular circumstance occurred about that race.' "'What was it?' "'Oh, shut up!' again interposed some of the audience. "'Why, it was a one by a horse and a rider, utterly unknown on the course.' "'Is that possible?' "'True as day. The fact was, 
nobody had observed a horse entered by the name of vampa or that of a jockey styled job when at the last moment a splendid roan mounted by a jockey about as big as your fist presented themselves at the starting post they were obliged to stuff at least twenty pounds weight of shot in the small rider's pockets to make him wait but with all that he had stripped ariel and barbar against whom he ran by at least three whole lengths and was it not found out at last to whom the horse and jockey belonged no you say that the horse was entered under the name of vampa exactly that was the title then answered albert i am better informed than you are and know who the owner of that horse was shut up there cried the pit in the chorus and this time the tone and manner in which the command was given betokened such growing hostility that the two young men perceived for the first time that the mandate was addressed to them leisurely turning round they calmly scrutinized the various countenances around them as though demanding some one person who would take upon himself the responsibility of what they deemed excessive impertinence but as no one responded to the challenge the friends turned again to the front of the theatre and affected to busy themselves with the stage at this moment the door of the minister's box opened and madame d'anglars accompanied by her daughter entered escorted by lucien de bray who assiduously conducted them to their seats ha ha said chateau here comes some friend of yours viscount what are you looking at there don't you see they're trying to catch your eye albert turned around just in time to receive a gracious wave of the fan from the baroness as for mademoiselle eugenie she scarcely vouchsafed to waste the glances of her large black eyes even upon the business of the stage i tell you what my dear fellow said chateau renaud i cannot imagine what objection you can possibly have to mademoiselle d'anglars that is setting aside her want of ancestry and somewhat inferior rank which by the way i don't think you care very much about now barring all that i mean to say she is a deuced fine girl handsome certainly replied albert but not to my taste which i confess inclines to something softer gentler and more feminine ah well exclaimed chateau renaud who because he had seen his thirtieth summer fancied himself duly warranted in assuming a sort of paternal air with his more youthful friend you young people are never satisfied why what would you have more your parents have chosen you a bride built on the model of diana the huntress and yet you are not content no for that very resemblance affrights me i should have liked something more in the manner of the venus of milo or capua but this chaste loving diana continually surrounded by her nymphs gives me a sort of alarm lest she should some day bring on me the fate of actaeon and indeed it required but one glance at mademoiselle d'anglars to comprehend the justness of morcerf's remark she was beautiful but her beauty was of too marked and decided a character to please a fastidious taste her hair was raven black but its natural waves seemed somewhat rebellious her eyes of the same color as her hair were surmounted by well-arched brows whose great defect however 
consisted in an almost habitual frown while her whole physiognomy wore that expression of firmness and decision so little in accordance with the gentler attributes of her sex her nose was precisely what a sculptor would have chosen for a chiselled juno her mouth which might have been found fault with as too large displayed teeth of pearly whiteness rendered still more conspicuous by the brilliant carmine of her lips contrasting vividly with her naturally pale complexion but that which completed the almost masculine look Morcerf found so little to his taste was a dark mole of much larger dimensions than those freaks of nature generally are placed just at the corner of her mouth and the effect tended to increase the expression of self-dependence that characterized her countenance the rest of mademoiselle eugenie's person was in perfect keeping with the head just described she indeed reminded one of diana as chateau renaud observed but her bearing was more haughty and resolute as regarded her attainments the only fault to be found with them was the same that a fastidious connoisseur might have found with her beauty that they were somewhat too erudite and masculine for so young a person she was a perfect linguist a first-rate artist wrote poetry and composed music to the study of the latter she professed to be entirely devoted following it with an indefatigable perseverance assisted by a schoolfellow a young woman without fortune whose talent promised to develop into remarkable powers as a singer it was rumoured that she was an object of almost paternal interest to one of the principal composers of the day who excited her to spare no pains in the cultivation of her voice which might hereafter prove a source of wealth and independence but this counsel effectually decided mademoiselle danglars never to commit herself by being seen in public with one destined for a theatrical life and acting upon this principle the banker's daughter though perfectly willing to allow mademoiselle louis d'armilly that was the name of the young virtuosa to practice with her through the day took especial care not to be seen in her company still though not actually received at the hotel d'anglars in the light of an acknowledged friend louise was treated with far more kindness and consideration than is usually bestowed on a governess the curtain fell almost immediately after the entrance of madame d'anglars into her box the band quitted the orchestra for the accustomed half-hour's interval allowed between the acts and the audience were left at liberty to promenade the salon or lobbies or to pay and receive visits in their respective boxes morcerf and chateau renaud were amongst the first to avail themselves of this permission for an instant the idea struck madame d'anglars that this eagerness on the part of the young viscount arose from his impatience to join her party and she whispered her expectations to her daughter that albert was hurrying to pay his respects to them mademoiselle eugenie however merely returned a dissenting movement of the head while with a cold smile she directed the attention of her mother to an opposite box on the first circle in which sat the countess g and where morcerf had just made his appearance so we meet again my travelling friend do we cried the countess extending her hand to him with all the warmth and cordiality of an old acquaintance it was really very good of you to recognize me so quickly and still more so to bestow your first visit on me be assured replied albert 
that if I had been aware of your arrival in Paris, and had known your address, I should have paid my respects to you before this. Allow me to introduce my friend, Baron de Chateau Renaud, one of the few true gentlemen now to be found in France, and from whom I have just learned that you were a spectator of the races in the Champ de Mars yesterday. Chateau Renaud bowed to the Countess. So, you were at the races, Baron? inquired the Countess eagerly. Yes, Madame. Well, then, pursued Madame G, with considerable animation, you can probably tell me who won the jockey club stakes. I am sorry to say I cannot, replied the Baron, and I was just asking the same question of Albert. Are you very anxious to know, Countess? asked Albert. To know what? The name of the owner of the winning horse. Excessively. Only imagine, but do tell me, Viscount, whether you really are acquainted with it or no. I beg your pardon, madame, but you were about to relate some story, were you not? You said, only imagine, and then paused. Pray, continue. Well, then, listen. You must know I felt so interested in the splendid Rowan horse, with his elegant little rider, so tastefully dressed in a pink satin jacket and cap, that I could not help praying for their success, with as much earnestness as though the half of my fortune were at stake. And when I saw them outstrip all the others, and come to the winning post in such gallant style, I actually clapped my hands with joy. Imagine my surprise when, upon returning home, the first object I met on the staircase was the identical jockey in the pink jacket. I concluded that by some singular chance the owner of the winning horse must live in the same hotel as myself. But as I entered my apartments I beheld the very gold cup awarded as a prize to the unknown horse and rider. Inside the cup was a small piece of paper on which were written these words from lord ruthven to countess g precisely i was sure of it said morcerf sure of what that the owner of the horse was lord ruthven himself what lord ruthven do you mean why our lord ruthven the vampire of the sal argentino is it possible exclaimed the countess is he here in paris to be sure why not and you visit him meet him at your own house and elsewhere i assure you he is most intimate friend and monsieur de chateau renaud has also the honor of his acquaintance but why are you so sure of his being the winner of the jockey club prize was not the winning horse entered by the name of vampa what of that why do you not recollect the name of the celebrated bandit by whom i was made a prisoner oh yes and from whose hands the count extricated me in a so wonderful a manner to be sure i remember it all now he called himself vampa you see it's evident where the count got the name but what could have been his motive for sending the cup to me in the first place because i had spoken much of you to him as you may believe 
and in the second because he delighted to see a countrywoman take so lively an interest in his success i trust and hope you never repeated to the count all the foolish remarks we used to make about him i should not like to affirm upon oath that i have not besides is presenting you the cup under the name of lord ruthven oh but that is dreadful why the man must owe me a fearful grudge does this action appear like that of an enemy no certainly not well then and so he is in paris yes and what effect does he produce why said albert he was talked about for a week then the coronation of the queen of england took place followed by the theft of mademoiselle mars's diamonds and so people talked of something else my good fellow said rachateau renaud the count is your friend and you treat him accordingly do not believe what albert is telling you countess so far from the sensation excited in the parisian circles by the appearance of the count of monte cristo having abated i take upon myself to declare that it is as strong as ever his first astounding act upon coming amongst us was to present a pair of horses worth thirty-two thousand francs to madame danglars his second the almost miraculous preservation of madame de villefort's life now it seems that he has carried off the prize awarded by the jockey club i therefore maintain in spite of morcerf that not only is the count the object of interest at this present moment but also that he will continue to be so for a month longer if he pleases to exhibit an eccentricity of conduct which after all may be his ordinary mode of existence perhaps you are right said morcerf meanwhile who is in the russian ambassador's box which box do you mean asked the countess the one between the pillars on the first tier it seems to have been fitted up entirely afresh did you observe anyone during the first act asked chateau renaud where in that box no replied the countess it was certainly empty during the first act then resuming the subject of their previous conversation she said and so you really believe it was your mysterious count of monte cristo that gained the prize i am sure of it and who afterwards sent the cup to me undoubtedly but i don't know him said the countess i have a great mind to return it do no such thing i beg of you he would only send you another formed of a magnificent sapphire or hollowed out of a gigantic ruby it is his way and you must take him as you find him at this moment the bell rang to announce the drawing up of the curtain for the second act albert rose to return to his place shall i see you again asked the countess at the end of the next act with your permission i will come and inquire whether there is anything i can do for you in paris pray take notice said the countess that my present residence is twenty-two rue de rivoli and that i am at home to my friends every saturday evening so now you are both forewarned the young men bowed and quitted the box 
Upon reaching their stalls, they found the whole of the audience in the parterre standing up and directing their gaze toward the box formerly possessed by the Russian ambassador. A man of from thirty-five to forty years of age, dressed in deep black, had just entered, accompanied by a young woman dressed after the Eastern style. The lady was surpassingly beautiful, while the rich magnificence of her attire drew all eyes upon her. Hello, said Albert. It is Monte Cristo and his Greek. The strangers were indeed no other than the Count and Haydi. In a few moments the young girl had attracted the attention of the whole house, and even the occupants of the boxes leaned forward to scrutinize her magnificent diamonds. The second act passed away during one continued buzz of voices, one deep whisper intimating that some great and universally interesting event had occurred. All eyes, all thoughts, were occupied with the young and beautiful woman, whose gorgeous apparel and splendid jewels made a most extraordinary spectacle. Upon this occasion an unmistakable sign from Madame d'Anglars intimated her desire to see Albert in her box directly the curtain fell on the second act, and neither the politeness nor good taste of Morcerf would permit his neglecting an invitation so unequivocally given. At the close of the act he therefore went to the baroness. Having bowed to the two ladies, he extended his hand to Dubray. By the baroness he was most graciously welcomed, while Eugenie received him with her accustomed coldness. "'My dear fellow,' said Debray, "'you have come in the nick of time. There is Madame overwhelming me with questions respecting the Count. She insists upon it that I can tell her his birth, education, and parentage, where he came from and whither he is going. Being no disciple of Cagliostro, I was wholly unable to do this.' So, by way of getting out of the scrape, I said, "'Ask Morcerf. He has got the whole history of this beloved Monte Cristo at his fingers.' Whereupon the baroness signified a desire to see you. "'Is it not almost incredible,' said Madame Danglars, "'that a person having at least half a million of secret service money at his command "'should possess so little information?' "'Let me assure you, madame,' said Lucien, that had I really the sum you mention at my disposal, I would employ it more profitably than in troubling myself to obtain particular respecting the Count of Monte Cristo, whose only merit in my eyes consists in his being twice as rich as a nabob. However, I have turned the business over to Morcerf, so pray settle it with him, as may be most agreeable to you, for my own part." I care nothing about the Count or his mysterious doings. I am very sure no nabob would have sent me a pair of horses worth thirty-two thousand francs, wearing on their heads four diamonds valued at five thousand francs each. He seems to have a mania for diamonds, said Morcerf, smiling, and I verily believe that, like Potemkin, he keeps his pockets filled for the sake of strewing them along the road as Tom Thumb did his flintstones. "'Perhaps he has discovered some mine,' said Madame Donglar. "'I suppose you know he has an order for unlimited credit on the Baron's banking establishment.' "'I was not aware of it,' replied Albert. "'But I can readily believe it. 
and further that he stated to monsieur danglars his intention of only staying a year in paris during which time he proposed to spend six million he must be the shah of persia travelling incog have you noticed the remarkable beauty of the young woman monsieur lucien inquired eugenie i really never met with one woman so ready to do justice to the charms of another as yourself responded lucien raising his lorgnette to his eye a most lovely creature upon my soul was his verdict who is this young person monsieur de morcerf inquired eugenie does anybody know mademoiselle said albert replying to this direct appeal i can give you very exact information on that subject as well on most points relative to the mysterious person of whom we are now conversing the young woman is a greek so i should suppose by her dress if you know no more than that every one here is as well formed as yourself i am extremely sorry you find me so ignorant a cicerone replied morcerf but i am reluctantly obliged to confess i have nothing further to communicate yes stay i do know one thing more namely that she is a musician for one day when i chanced to be breakfasting with the count i heard the sound of a guzla it is impossible that it could have been touched by any other finger than her own then your count entertains visitors does he asked madame danglars indeed he does and in a most lavish manner i can assure you i must try and persuade monsieur danglars to invite him to a ball or dinner or something of the sort that he may be compelled to ask us in return what said debray laughing do you really mean you would go to his house why not my husband could accompany me but do you know this mysterious count is a bachelor you have ample proof to the contrary if you look opposite said the baroness as she laughingly pointed to the beautiful greek no no exclaimed debray that girl is not his wife he told us himself she was his slave do you not recollect morcerf his telling us so at your breakfast well then said the baroness if slave she be she has all the air and manner of a princess of the arabian nights if you like but tell me my dear lucien what it is that constitutes a princess why diamonds and she is covered with them to me she seems overloaded observed eugenie she would look far better if she wore fewer and we should then be able to see her finely formed throat and wrists see how the artist peeps out exclaimed madame danglars my poor eugenie you must conceal your passion for the fine arts i admire all that is beautiful returned the young lady what did you think of the count inquired debray he is not much amiss according to my ideas of good looks the count repeated eugenie as though it had not occurred to her to observe him sooner the count oh he is so dreadfully pale i quite agree with you said morcerf and the secret of that very pallor is what we want to find out the countess g insists upon it that he is a vampire then the countess g 
has returned to paris has she inquired the baroness is that she mamma asked eugenie almost opposite to us with that profusion of beautiful light hair yes said madame danglars that is she shall i tell you what you ought to do morcerf command me madame well then you should go and bring your count of monte cristo to us what for asked eugenie what for why to converse with him of course have you really no desire to meet him none whatever replied eugenie strange child murmured the baroness he will very probably come of his own accord said morcerf there do you see madame he recognizes you and bows the baroness returned the salute in the most smiling and graceful manner well said morcerf i may as well be magnanimous and tear myself away to forward your wishes adieu i will go and try if there are any means of speaking to him go straight to his box that will be the simplest plan but i have never been presented presented to whom to the beautiful greek you say she is only a slave while you assert that she is a queen or at least a princess no i hope that when he sees me leave you he will come out that is possible go i am going said albert as he made his parting bow just as he was passing the count's box the door opened and monte cristo came forth after giving some directions to ali who stood in the lobby the count took albert's arm carefully closing the box door ali placed himself before it while a crowd of spectators assembled around the nubian upon my word said monte cristo paris is a strange city and the parisians are a very singular people see that cluster of persons collected around poor ali who is as much astonished as themselves really one might suppose he was the only nubian they have ever beheld now i can promise you that a frenchman might show himself in public either in tunis constantinople baghdad or cairo without being treated in that way that shows that the eastern nations have too much good sense to waste their time and attention on objects undeserving of either however as far as ali is concerned i can assure you the interest he excites is merely from the circumstance of his being your attendant you who are at this moment the most celebrated and fashionable person in paris really and what has procured me so fluttering a distinction what why yourself to be sure you give away horses worth a thousand louis you save the lives of ladies of high rank and beauty under the name of major brack you run thoroughbreds ridden by tiny urchins not larger than marmot then when you have carried off the golden trophy of victory instead of setting any value on it you give it to the first handsome woman you think of and who has filled your head with all this nonsense why in the first place i heard it from madame danglars who by the by is dying to see you in her box or to have you seen there by others secondly i learned it from beauchamp's journal and thirdly from my own imagination why if you sought concealment did you call your horse vampa 
"'That was an oversight, certainly,' replied the Count. "'But tell me, does the Count of Morcerf never visit the opera? "'I have been looking for him, but without success.' "'He will be here to-night.' "'In what part of the house?' "'In the Baroness's box, I believe.' "'That charming young woman with her, is that her daughter?' "'Yes. I congratulate you.' Morcerf smiled. "'We will discuss that subject at length some future time,' said he. "'But what do you think of the music?' "'What music?' "'Why, the music you have been listening to.' "'Oh, it is well enough as the production of a human composer, sung by featherless bipeds.' to quote the late Diogenes. "'From which it would seem, my dear Count, that you can at pleasure enjoy the seraphic strains that proceed from the seven choirs of paradise. You are right in some degree, when I wish to listen to sounds more exquisitely attuned to melody than mortal ear ever yet listened to. I go to sleep.' "'Then sleep here, my dear Count. The conditions are favourable.' "'What else was opera invented for?' "'No, thank you. "'Your orchestra is too noisy. "'To sleep after the manner I speak of, "'absolute calm and silence are necessary, "'and then a certain preparation. "'I know, the famous Ashish. "'Precisely. "'So, my dear Viscount, "'whenever you wish to be regaled with music, "'come and sup with me.' "'I have already enjoyed that treat when breakfasting with you,' said Morcerf. "'Do you mean at Rome?' "'I do.' "'Ah, then, I suppose, you heard Hades Guzla. "'The poor exile frequently beguiles a weary hour "'in playing over to me the airs of her native land.' Morcerf did not pursue the subject, "'and Monte Cristo himself fell into a silent reverie. "'The bell rang at this moment for the rising of the curtain.' "'You will excuse me leaving you,' said the Count, turning in the direction of his box. "'What? Are you going?' "'Pray say everything that is kind to Countess G, on the part of her friend, the vampire.' "'And what message shall I convey to the Baroness?' "'That with her permission I shall do myself the honour of paying my respects in the course of the evening.' The third act had begun— and during its progress the Count of Morcerf, according to his promise, made his appearance in the box of Madame Danglars. The Count of Morcerf was not a person to excite either interest or curiosity in a place of public amusement. His presence, therefore, was wholly unnoticed, save by the occupants of the box in which he had just seated himself. The quick eye of Monte Cristo, however, marked his coming, and a slight though meaningful smile passed over his lips haiti whose soul seemed centred in the business of the stage like all unsophisticated natures delighted in whatever addressed itself to the eye or ear the third act passed off as usual mesdemoiselles noblet joulet and leroux executed the customary pirouette robert duly challenged the prince of granada and the royal father of the princess isabella taking his daughter by the hand, swept round the stage with majestic strides, the better to display the rich folds of his velvet robe and mantle. After which the curtain again fell, and the spectators poured forth from the theatre into the lobbies and salon. 
the count left his box and a moment later was saluting the baron d'anglars who could not restrain a cry of mingled pleasure and surprise you are welcome count she exclaimed as he entered i have been most anxious to see you that i might repeat orally the thanks writing can so ill express surely so trifling a circumstance cannot deserve a place in your remembrance believe me madam i had entirely forgotten it but it is not so easy to forget monsieur that the very next day after your princely gift you saved the life of my dear friend madame de villefort which was endangered by the very animals your generosity restored to me this time at least i do not deserve your thanks it was ali my nubian slave who rendered this service to madame de villefort was it ali asked the count of morcerf who rescued my son from the hands of bandits no count replied monte cristo taking the hand held out to him by the general in this instance i may fairly and freely accept your thanks but you have already tendered them and fully discharged your debt if indeed there existed one and i feel almost mortified to find you still reverting to the subject may i beg of you baroness to honour me with an introduction to your daughter oh you are no stranger at least not by name replied madame d'anglars and the last two or three days we have really talked of nothing but you eugenie continued the baroness turning towards her daughter this is the count of monte cristo the count bowed while mademoiselle d'anglars bent her head slightly you have a charming young person with you to-night count said eugenie is she your daughter no mademoiselle said monte cristo astonished at the coolness and freedom of the question she is a poor unfortunate greek left under my care and what is her name haiti replied monte cristo a greek murmured the count of morcerf yes indeed count said madame d'anglars and tell me did you ever see at the court of ali tepelini whom you so gloriously and valiantly served a more exquisite beauty or richer costume did i hear rightly monsieur said monte cristo that you served at janina i was inspector-general of the pasha's troops replied morcerf and it is no secret that i owe my fortune such as it is to the liberality of the illustrious albanese chief but look exclaimed madame d'anglars where stammered morcerf there said monte cristo placing his arms around the count and leaning with him over the front of the box just as haiti whose eyes were occupied in examining the theatre in search of her guardian perceived his pale features close to morcerf's face it was as if the young girl beheld the head of medusa she bent forwards as though to assure herself of the reality of what she saw then uttering a faint cry threw herself back in her seat the sound was heard by the people about ali who instantly opened the box door why count exclaimed eugenie what has happened to your ward she seems to have been taken suddenly ill very probably answered the count but do not be alarmed on her account Hades' nervous system is delicately organized 
and she is peculiarly susceptible to the odours even of flowers nay there are some which cause her to faint if brought into her presence however continued monte cristo drawing a small phial from his pocket i have an infallible remedy so saying he bowed to the baroness and her daughter exchanged a parting shake of the hand with debray and the count and left madame danglars box upon his return to haiti he found her still very pale as soon as she saw him she seized his hand her own hands were moist and icy cold who was it you were talking with over there she asked with the count of morcerf answered monte cristo he tells me he served your illustrious father and that he owes his fortune to him wretch exclaimed haiti her eyes flashing with rage he sold my father to the turks and the fortune he boasts of was the price of his treachery did you not know that my dear lord something of this i heard in epirus said monte cristo but the particulars are still unknown to me you shall relate them to me my child they are no doubt both curious and interesting yes yes but let us go i feel as though it would kill me to remain long near that dreadful man so saying haiti arose and wrapping herself in her burnous of white cashmere embroidered with pearls and coral she hastily quitted the box at the moment when the curtain was rising upon the fourth act do you observe said the countess g to albert who had returned to her side that man does nothing like other people he listens most devoutly to the third act of robert le diable and when the fourth begins takes his departure end of chapter fifty three